I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> X-Men The Last Stand and X-Men Origins colon Wolverine. A major pharmaceutical company has developed a way to suppress the mutant X gene permanently. They're calling it a cure. There's nothing to cure. Nothing's wrong with any of us for that matter. You of all people know how fast the weather can change. Did you find what you were looking for? The source of the cure is a mutant. More powerful than you. Logan! Gee, something woke her. But she has to be controlled. You know, sometimes when you cage the beast, I can't do this. The beast gets angry. You have no idea. You have no idea what is upon us now. Fury that this world has never witnessed. Magneto's got an army out there. You go to war, you might not come home. She might not come home. You ready for that? We're not kids anymore. Hey, I'm not your father. If you want to go, be sure it's what you want. It's time we make our choice. If you're with us, then be with us. They wish to cure us. But I say we are the cure. Look at me, G. We can help you. We can fix it. We can make it like it was. Stay with me. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. We're back to review the third X-Men movie, this time directed by Brett Ratner. Arguably the lowest ebb in the series, and certainly the one that made us the angriest so far. Berserker rages, primed and ready to unleash. Hello, Sharon. Hello. This film cost $210 million relative to the $75 million of the first and $110 million of the second. So that's coming on for twice as much as X-Men 2. On viewing, it's not entirely clear where all this extra money went, aside from the lucrative contracts for Halle Berry and Hugh Jackman. Oh, speaking of lucrative contracts, um, Halle Berry said she wouldn't return after X-Men 2 unless her uh, role was substantially uh, increased. And then she made Catwoman and became less picky. <laughs> well, to be fair, that was a, a headline role. She was, you know, the main character. Yeah. Uh, either way, at the time of release, it was one of the most expensive films ever made. X-Men 3, that is, not Catwoman. And still only cost 10 million less than 2012's The Avengers. It was written by Simon Kinberg, who contributed to Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Jumper, Sherlock Holmes, the good one, that is, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, and X-Men Days of Future Past. Along with Zach Penn, who contributed to Last Action Hero, Inspector Gadget, Elektra, The Incredible Hulk, and The Avengers. Crucially, though, it would appear that the better works with Zach Penn's name attached were substantially rewritten by Shane Black, Edward Norton, and Joss Whedon. 
In other words, he's okay at story framework, but if you want character development in dialogue, you may as well ask the cat. Ratner was brought in after British producer-director Matthew Vaughan, the director of Layer Cake, Stardust and Kick-Ass, left after creative differences with Fox. On inspection, it appears that they wanted the film rushed out to hit a late May 2006 release date, and Vaughan saw no way to deliver a work of quality. Ratner had no such qualms. There's something about Ratner's work, and... This seems to be a universal case. He's worth $65 million, as I said above. Um, people love his films even though they're shit. Or at least they go and see his films in droves even though they're shit. I'm just thankful he hasn't made much since X-Men 3. Maybe he just hasn't needed to. I was going to say, with that kind of salary, he uh, possibly hasn't needed to. Yeah. Vaughan was also not the first director, as Brian Singer, director of X-Men 1 and X-Men 2, and X-Men 7, departed early in the projects to direct divisive love letter to Richard Donner's Superman, Superman Returns, which is an action he said later that he regretted. He felt before watching X-Men 3, during watching X-Men 3, and most definitely after watching X-Men 3, I should have done that. Joss Whedon was considered, but he was too busy being fired from the Wonder Woman movie that never happened. Let's not mince words here. This movie is a mess. A complete and total mess. Delivered incompetently, sloppily, without any understanding of the multiple themes and allegories within. Screwed up, incomplete, and just plain baffling character arcs. And a forced ending to a series that seems to just have kept going anyway. Zack Penn defended the divergences from the original Dark Phoenix story, stating that the Phoenix was not a firebird-shaped cosmic force because it didn't fit into the world, and that Cyclops did not have as much screen time as Wolverine. It's not so much not as much screen time as Wolverine. He got 4 minutes 40 seconds. Anyway, he didn't have as much screen time as Wolverine because the latter was more popular. And with Cyclops, you can't see his eyes. It's a harder character to relate to for the audience. Killing Cyclops was Fox's decision based on the availability of actor James Marsden, who was cast in Singer's Superman Returns. The studio considered killing him off-screen with a dialogue reference, but Kinberg and Penn insisted that Gene kill him, emphasizing their relationship. Xavier's death was intended to match the impact of Spock's demise in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Did it? Do I really need to answer that question? No good. I have been and always will be your friend. As Fox felt the script called for a dramatic turning point, Kinberg and Penn were originally cautious but grew to like the idea of killing off Xavier. You'll like what we tell you to like, Kinberg and Penn. They decided to write a post... That's Fox, not me. (laughs) They decided to write a post-credit scene suggesting the characters return for a sequel. So they defied Fox. As the studio was simultaneously developing X-Men Origins Wolverine, limitations were set on which mutants could be used for cameo appearances in X-Men 3 in an attempt to avoid risking character development for Wolverine. Fortunately, there was no risk of character development for Wolverine. Gambit initially appeared in the Battle of Alcatraz Climax with the X-Men, but the writers did not want to introduce a fan-favorite character and not be able to do him justice. Oh, no, far better to introduce him in Wolverine and not do him justice. Absolutely. Dodged a bullet there, didn't they? Yes. Charged with, uh, what's wrong with these bullets? They're exploding! Kinberg reasoned there just wasn't enough space. Do you know what? Well, maybe make your film slightly longer than an hour and 39 minutes. 
I suspect if they'd been asked to find space for Wolverine to fight a polar bear and then the X-Men to take on a giant robot spider, space would have been found. That would have been worth some of the $210 million this cost. I don't know, polar bears aren't that expensive. For her dual role as Jean Grey slash Phoenix, mm, Famke Janssen extensively researched disassociative identity disorders and split personalities to make her performance convincing. Sadly, Brett Ratner did not. As originally scripted, the Golden Gate Bridge sequence was originally in the middle of the film. Magneto was going to have moved it to Alcatraz Island to free Mystique. Oh, yeah, that's... Do you know... Do you understand the meaning of the term low-profile, Eric? <laughs> Let me tell you what low-profile is not. It's not moving monuments when you could just take a boat. <laughs> as the facility would have been revived as a special mutant prison, the final battle was to take place in Washington, D.C., which was set to be home to Worthington Labs. Thus, Magneto's plan would have been twofold. Destroy the cure and take control of the White House. However... No, I believe the X-Men did that in X2. However, when Brett Ratner signed to direct, he decided the bridge sequence would create a more dramatic climax if moved to the end. Not, this is fucking stupid, we're not doing that. It would be more dramatic if we stuck it at the end. So the script was rewritten to have Alcatraz transformed into the Worthington Labs facility, which is somewhat... Oh, I've got to do this in a nerd voice. Which is somewhat nonsensical, since Alcatraz is a national monument, and thus cannot be owned or altered by a private company. Yeah, because that's the only thing that doesn't make sense about X-Men 3. Mm. According to VFX supervisor John Bruno, about $35 million, a sixth of the film's budget, was wasted, sorry, spent on the Golden Gate sequence. This included constructing a full-scale section of the bridge that was about the size of a basketball court, and then using computer-generated imagery on the rest of the bridge and its background. Okay, so that's enough of the background of the film. Let's talk about what's in the film. Uh, you've got extensive notes, Sharon. I'm just going to let, let you go ahead and, and just, you know... The, I will say at least this film, like the first two, starts off strong. Doesn't it? It, it starts off with... Um, kind of. Young Worthing... Hang on. 20 uh, no, opens, oh, no, actually, yeah. No, 20 years ago with, thing is just creepy. But the, I was going to say. Young it's, it's, Warren Worthington trying to saw off his wings is a genuinely chilling and effective scene. And it feels like that was maybe left over from Matthew Vaughan's uh, edits on the script in the uh, story. But that's the thing. And I suspect that this is one of the reasons why I find this film so frustrating and why it is the one of the three, the first three, yeah. that pisses me off so much because the first one had nothing behind it mm -hmm. you know the, the, as we discussed there had been no superhero movies of this type before the second one actually built on that and got stronger and there was much to credit it with although in retrospect we can see that it was rather flawed and botched at the end yeah, something of a drop-off at the end. But overall, for a second outing, they did well. They had nowhere to go but up. And yet, you watch this and you can literally pick out the elements, the scenes and the, the ideas that were good and would have provided them with a great framework for building something that was a, a worthy climax to this uh, trilogy as it was appears to have been conceived. Yeah. Every single ball they had they dropped with a plum. Um, 
I mean, the the opening scene where uh, Eric and Charles turn up to talk. To you mean him. creepy CG Botox, Eric and Charles? Yes, <laughs> indeed. Like um, from the word go, when watching it, I was like, uh oh, uh oh, this film's gonna suck. Yeah. Carry I mean, a- apart from anything else, I don't honestly think that Patrick Stewart. I mean, Ian McKellen, yes, probably does look his age. Patrick Stewart, you could probably have got away with a, wig. a bit of makeup. A wig. A wig would have just looked bad. <laughs> he would have looked like Fester in the <laughs> It just would have looked wrong. Um, but, but not, yeah, CG Botox, was that really necessary? They, their faces looked just, if you're having uncanny valley feelings about actual live action performances, that's not good. Yeah, it's distracting. It's yes. it's the same thinking that went into the beginning of the the uh, the fifth Twilight movie. Mm. It's like let's let's stick the 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 kid's face on the baby. That's not going to be super creepy. Indeed. Um, and then moving on from the incredibly weird visuals at this point, um, all the dialogue here is just so much exposition. Um, there is so much as you know in this film it made me want to punch things um you know it's i i think the their opening salvo is something along the lines of eric goes let's go in and grab her or something like that and charles goes oh eric you know that's not my way for goodness sake, they've known each other for years. They wouldn't need to have that conversation. This is apparently like 1981, and allegedly, if we're to believe Charles saying that he met Eric in, in when he was 17, they've known each other since either the late 40s or early 50s. That really doesn't match up with things. No, and of course, it sure as shit doesn't match up with X-Men First Class, wherein, uh, by the end of the film, Charles is most definitely not bald, and most definitely not walking, and most definitely not buds with Magneto. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that a lot of stuff gets changed in between these times. Universe A, folks. Universe A. Yeah, I mean, the the characters just... Magneto's motivation has always been all over the place. We have established this. Um, but Charles, to this point, has been sort of relatively consistent as a character, and, and you can get a, a reasonable handle on who he is and how he does things. But in the course of this one conversation, he chides Jean for reading their thoughts without permission, then goes into her head and shuts off several portions of her brain. Yeah. Is it get, just me who sees a little bit of a discrepancy there in, you know, do as I say, not as I do? Yeah, we can talk about Charles's approach to psychology in this film and only this film uh, later on, but uh, it's disturbing. Yeah. It's it's good in a way because it makes it that much easier to kick this one under the sofa and go, you know what? Yeah, that this one happened. didn't fucking happen. Yeah. That's the thing. I, I, I can guarantee that by the end of uh, X, I don't know much about the film, but I want to speculate about it, but X-Men Days of Future Past, going to cancel this one out. Yep. First Class con- cancels out most of it, to be honest. Yeah. Then we go to uh, jump to uh, ten years uh, prior to the beginning of... Like if, if we're, in terms of timeline... In the future. In the future. <laughs> Yeah. There will be sentinels. Now, there, <laughs> no, there won't be sentinels. Yeah, well, there will in the danger room. 
they they couldn't afford a proper center. This is oh, the first yeah. time they uh, um, they were going to put a uh, danger room program in the first X Men film. Too much money decided against it. Second one they slashed it down by ten million. Didn't have time and uh, money to put in a danger room section. They put in this one. It's like really that cost that much money. Why would they give them a sentinel to fight in the danger room when the sentinels don't really exist in real life? And they know nothing about Days of Future Past. Yeah. Because it's fan service and fast what, special. And, yeah. What do we need to train these kids to go up against in this world of diplomacy and medical approaches to mutations? Let's teach them to kill giant robots. Is this the worst sequence in X-Men 3? <laughs> this, this is the, the best, best sequence, sequence in X-Men 3. <laughs> it's such a, I don't think there is a best sequence. No, no, it was this. Just the, the fact that Wolverine yeah, is oh, so yeah, casually tough. The, the supposed finale, but we'll yeah. come to that. Here well, they're using the... teamwork, which is something they almost never do in any of the other films. Colossus uh, gives his power to Rogue for a brief while to make her invulnerable, and Kitty phases with Iceman. Although that kind of contradicts when Storm has a go at Logan for not apparently using teamwork. He was working with Colossus as a pair, which is exactly yeah. what the others have been doing. Storm, not a mathematician. Not really. But <laughs> one thing, one thing that I will say. There's only, there's only one way this could end. Either you die or I do. Or I do. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I have criticized so far, and I must give this a teeny tiny weeny bit of credit for doing, because they don't really go anywhere with it. So they don't exactly maximise on what they've achieved. But they do actually hint at the anger that they keep talking about Rogue uh, Storm possessing. Mm-hmm. The fact that when they come out of the danger room, she basically reams Wolverine out in front of the students, which but, is... Sorry, say again. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that happening in the film. Uh, Okay. She hauls Logan over the coals in front of the students. Doesn't matter, he's got a healing factor. Not, (laughs) it's not a professional thing to do, but it does hint at the fact that she is very frustrated by, by how things are going and that's how it comes out. I'm just Um, so full of anger. And then there's a, there's another scene in a bit where um, the cure is announced and her reaction is very angry and, Irrespective of the fact that I don't think Storm is really the mutant to be saying this cure is unnecessary, we don't want it, we don't need it, how dare they foist it upon us, when her mutation is A, entirely invisible, unless she's choosing to use it, and on the matter of choice, B, almost entirely under her control. And awesome. What about the kid who farts out of his face? What about the the um, kid who can't stop herself turning into lava? There was a really good issue of Ultimate X-Men, issue 41, where this young boy wakes up and his family have disappeared. And he goes out into the street and everyone's disappeared in the street. And he wanders around looking for uh, anyone to help him out. And he eventually finds his way to a cave uh, and Logan's in there. Logan's been sent by Charles to meet this boy and he gives the boy a beer and uh, Charles talks to him Logan's very grave about what has to happen and then Logan leaves the cave shortly afterwards having killed the boy this boy has got a power so 
terrifying that he could simply wink people out of existence without even thinking about it or knowing about it. And so Charles, in the Ultimate Universe, has him killed by his assassin, Logan. And that's a really horrible scenario, but it actually plays in and could play in very well with what happens within this film. But, of course, it requires a delicate touch and understanding of what you're talking about and the awe-inspiring power, uh, both at the control of the both at the hands of the government and the mutants themselves. Yeah. I mean, we, we, there are a lot of ethical issues raised in this. And we know that because the kids are having an ethics lesson in class. In the first, what is it? In the first one, it's physics, isn't it? And this is the film that's all about explaining how mutations work. What are they studying in the second one? History. And it's about how, what's led them to this situation and what, you know, what has put them in this position. And then it's ethics and it's all about the, mm. uh, the moral implications of what their powers mean for themselves and the rest of the human race. However, all those ethical issues that get raised, they don't go anywhere. They don't do anything with them. Better to have more fighting sequences. Um, Terrible fighting sequences. It's important, actually, that we'll mention this now during the cure scenario. You realized when there were people outside the uh, cure clinics picketing them and saying, we don't need a cure, we don't need a cure. What did you realize? There, right. I doubt very much that this was intentional. It's more of an accidental but alarming parallel. Yeah, but it, it kind of comes across like... I, I, I don't know if really pro-life is the way to put it, but anti-choice or anti-choice picketing outside um, abortion clinics. And then Rogue sort of sneaks in to have her operation done so she can shamefully shed this, this mutation she's got that's otherwise going to ruin her life. And she makes that choice. And, and Storm saying, how dare anyone make that choice? It, somebody with guts and understanding of the situation would be able to make that parallel fairly starkly. But, of course, guts and understanding are not two things present in this film. No, not really. Uh, and, and again, with the, the idea of the sort of these little flashes of Storm being characterised, there is a shade of that when Cyclops is reintroduced and the fact that he is falling apart following Jean's death. Yeah. That's not a bad start for actually getting somebody who so far managed to get through two entire films without really being a whole person yeah. um, to give him some characterization, to give us some understanding of, of who he is, what makes him tick, what's devastating him at this point. But it goes nowhere. In fact, in his case, it goes less than nowhere because all they're doing is setting him up for slaughter. There's something very significant about the X-Men comic in terms of uh, gender equality as well. There really aren't that many books out there with similar levels of male, female characters and protagonists. Justice League occasionally, depending on the, the uh, actual roster and who's writing it, has more of a focus on stronger female characters uh, alongside the male characters. But, I mean, Avengers has struggled over the years to have more than a couple I mean, you know, I could reel a bunch off of the top of my head. Um, Ms. Marvel, Scarlet Witch, Tigra, Mockingbird. But by and large, the X-Men has been a really nicely divided lineup. I mean, after, after, say, it really started in the 80s 
there were sort of like there were token females in uh, the original lineup and then the 70s lineup. But the 80s was when it, they really started introducing Rogue and Shadowcat and Psylocke. Polaris took more of a, a, a center stage after appearances previously, and that's a huge deal. That is a huge way of getting female audiences reading comics that are otherwise action comics. You know, for the perception is of Marvel comics are just being wham kapow, which diminishes the um, often fairly impactful, especially when you're a teenager and there's bugger all else out there to actually tell you this stuff in an entertaining fashion, thought-provoking social allegory. Not to mention giving male comics readers an understanding of the fact that there are women out there doing shit, not yeah. just, you know, men getting stuff done and women off somewhere. And to their credit, the films, as bad as they get, even this one, do give uh, the females a, a decent uh, crack of the whip. In terms of numbers, yes. Numbers, yes. But that's about all they do. Um, even actually, I remember complaining about the original X-Men. Um, Charles calls them his X-Men, but this is obviously before you've seen First Class, you don't know anything about them. He's got Cyclops, he's got Storm, and then there's a woman named Jean Grey who isn't really allowed out. How are they the X-Men? <laughs> when, when did he arrive upon this name? Mm. There's so, it's such a sparse team before Wolverine and Rogue uh, join in. It doesn't really validate the name X-Men. There's a fairly unpleasant uh, level of, uh, um, what would be the word, fear of female seductresses. Oh, God, in this. yes. There's a, well, Mystique and Phoenix are both treated in this really patronizing, slightly paranoid way. You are female and therefore duplicitous, and we know this because you have boobs. And we know you have boobs because we can see them because of the costume we put you in. <laughs> For like all your kind... Ye are, are false. false. <laughs> right. Mystique's interview with the chap who they've only put in there to remind you of Hannibal Lecter. Oh, yeah, he was the guy who pisses off Hannibal Lecter. Yes, he was. Um, I'm having that, an old friend for dinner. That almost seems to have been set up deliberately to sort of make you think, aha, they're treating her as this incredibly dangerous, um, insane, psychopath person. Um, right. <laughs> when she's having her little interview with him, she refers to him as Meat Sack. <laughs> You're right? not a robot. <laughs> Has the kill-all-humans agenda absorbed her so much that she's forgotten that she is also made of flesh. You're not Bender. She also spits at him. Homo sapien. Indeed. Which, that kind of does make sense. They then expand that to when she's in the uh, truck and she switches into um, the, the security guard and then into a little girl uh, who they get to say, I'm going to kill you in this really sort of chilling way. And it's like, ah, oh, remember, she can change form. And then they pan back around onto her. And it's Mystique, the blue-skinned shape-changer. Yes, we know. Phoenix also runs into this bullshit as well. She says to Scott, 
Take off your glasses. I will fix your... I have fixed your power. You can't hurt me. He takes off his glasses. She kisses him. And then you get to see her eyes behind him. And she goes... It's like that bit in The Shining. She goes all corpsified. And then he goes... And then I think she kills him or something evaporates him. Because that's what we see happen to other people. I spent the entire film going... Well, he's not dead, though, is he? I mean, you know, Cyclops is going to come back. We haven't actually seen him die. We never saw the body. And if you haven't seen the body, it's not the case. But he's really dead. And it's a shit way of getting that across because there's no motivation for it. There's no understanding of this Phoenix character. Not and then right. later when Charles explains it, there's a comic It makes called, even less sense. It makes less sense. There's a comic called Rising Stars, a really, really good one, which I've mentioned before, where a character named Stephanie Mass is a sort of mousy and submissive and she has a split personality like Gollum and her dominant personality uh, critical mass is the one with all the superpowers and she's the super aggressive one and that sort of seems to be what they've done with Xavier here but they've they've sexed up the phoenix so she's like uh, uh, super that's how you know she's evil because yeah. she's gone all sexy like she's all like you know uh, uh, what would be the word rapacious yes that will yeah. do. Uh, yeah, there, there, there seems to be a genuine uncomfortable feeling of, of them not really knowing how to put across Phoenix's inner turmoil, as it were. In the in the comic book, the original Phoenix comes bursting out of the water, and it's a cosmic entity, and she's pretty much a blank slate. She's um, confused about where she is, and it takes a long time of other people meddling with the Phoenix Force and trying to exploit it and exploit her and use her as a weapon before she finally turns and goes, oh, fuck this, enough of this. But the way they've written it, I understand that you're not going to make her a cosmic entity. I kind of like the idea that it was always present within Jean, but... They're very confused about the way that they put across this other entity. There also appears to be no discourse or no relationship between Jean and this other personality. She just sort of switches in and out. She just seems to be unaware of... The Jean we know almost seems like a, a, a mask that the Phoenix has been wearing. A construct that Charles basically created yeah. by locking right. off. See, that's that's the other thing, and I'll, I'll all right, we'll we'll jump to this, and I'll go into this Perfect. now because what what you've said about um, uh, Stephanie and Critical Mass in Rising Stars, there is something very specific about Stephanie's childhood that has led her to be um, yeah. to have dissociative personality disorder, and. The powers are kind of incidental to that. The mental illness side of her is part of her. It's She is a, a fully rounded character and that is an element of her and the powers are secondary to that and they yeah. are just worked into that side of how her mind works. So it would have been the case with her, psychologically speaking, either way the powers were simply added to the uh, the story. Exactly. And she was she was abused and she had a very traumatic childhood and that's how she got to that position. Jean is introduced as a quite naughty girl. You know, the way the, the way she converses with Charles at the beginning. Yeah. Oh, no, you're not like me. Look at what I can do. And then she moves all well, the cards. She's like Voldemort. She's like Tom Riddle. She's, she I is. Make them hurt. But why was Tom that way? Tom was that way because he'd been abandoned, because he'd been institutionalised, because he'd been um, surrounded by children who didn't understand him and were cruel to him. Now, some of those elements may have been present in Jean's upbringing, but we see no evidence of this. She lives with her mother and father, so we know she's had at least some input of a, a, a caring or at least protected 
childhood upbringing. It's a major that's, that's been relatively comic. Her parents don't at all fit the type uh, that would actually foster a child like that. Absolutely. And they don't, they don't seem to know anything about her powers, so it's unlikely that they have been cruel to her on that basis. And it's redundant for us to say because they can do whatever they want with the characters, but not, none of that is in the comic. She has yeah. a good, loving upbringing, and that is what makes her so forthright as a character. Indeed, indeed. But then Charles comes in, locks off the powers... And be a good girl. Conceal, don't feel. Well, indeed. Oh my God! Her personality gets shut away with the powers, right? Jean then goes on to have what appears to be quite a productive, relatively uh, normal in inverted commas, but certainly a, a life in which she is loved, and very specifically in which she loves. Why would she grow and develop into somebody who has this secondary part of her personality, which is furious and rage-filled and angry? And also, given that Charles seems to have been monitoring her for all these years and was well aware that this was happening, why did he allow it to continue? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Only Wolverine can hear you right now. <laughs> Sorry. But that was that was such a huge if if he had tweaked a few things so that her powers would not come to the fore and then had nothing more to do with her until all of a sudden Phoenix burst onto the scene, that I could probably just about go with. It would be remarkably irresponsible and unethical of him to do so, but I could just about accept that. But Charles is not an inept therapist. Certainly not from what we've seen in uh, X-Men First Class. I can't imagine James McAvoy's Charles doing what is being suggested here. No, and the fact that he he almost, it, I would say admits, but it's not even an admission. He's not saying to Logan, this is what I did, and I'm now starting to realise it was a really bad idea. He's just saying, this is what I did, this is what I had to do, yeah. and everything will be fine as long as nobody lets the Phoenix Force out of her head. This yes, because that's going to work. This was Patrick Stewart's time to really act. He should have lost it at this point and expressed regret and the fact that this was a deep, dark secret and he realised that he shouldn't have been doing it uh, after a, a while, but that there was no way out and he had no one to talk to about it and no one that he could trust with it. And there was this awesome power living in the same house as him and he is afraid of Jean. But that would take guts and understanding of the situation. Two things not present in this movie. Not in the slightest blaming Patrick Stewart for this, by the way. He cannot work with what he is not given. But, I mean, it's not that Charles has never been known to do morally dubious things in the comics. I mean, that, you know, he's, he's, does the whole onslaught. Thing yeah, some of the, the, the he, danger room thing scenario in um, uh, Josh Whedon's Gifted. Yeah, what you described Data. about the the um, the incident with the child that he basically has Wolverine terminate because he's too dangerous to be allowed to live. That's he, Ultimate Charles, who's slightly different, but not okay, that much but, different. Yeah. But my point being, there is form for it. There is there is a evidence. darkness within Charles Xavier. Uh, Onslaught didn't. Ju- <sighs> Okay, we can mention this because it's not really spoiling anything. It's a reference to a 1996 com- comic storyline. In X-Men Fatal Attractions, which is one of the uh, the really good 90s crossovers, and I actually do urge people to uh, track down some of the essential comic books from that six-issue series, I recommend these four. Uncanny X-Men 303 and 304, X-Men 25, and Wolverine 75. After Magneto... 
uh, takes on the UN and becomes a genuine threat to the world again. And after Colossus leaves the X-Men in anguish after the death of his sister to join Magneto's acolytes, Charles has a bit of a breakdown. They go to Avalon, Magneto's home that he's tried to retreat from the rest of the world, to track down Eric and stop him. Charles shuts down Eric's mind, blanks him, turns him into a drooling vegetable. And it's seen as a, a last resort scenario, as a, as a direct result of what Eric does to Logan, which is to tear the adamantium from his body. Something I know that they've been considering doing in the movies, but never really had the guts to actually perform. Because that would genuinely test the Wolverine character. You know, can he survive if his healing factor is, is pushed beyond its limit? He's broken at this point. So, yeah, Charles shuts him down. In performing this extreme act of mental aggression, there is a silent price to be paid, and a portion of Eric's similarly dark and violent persona breaks away and becomes lodged inside Charles's mind. It festers there, unmentioned, for several years of continuity. Several years later, this uh, psionic creature named Onslaught busts out of Charles and tries to take over the Marvel Universe, and pretty much all the heroes have to die to defeat him. Onslaught is a fusion of all of Charles's repressed frustrations and Eric's ability to perform atrocious acts for a perceived greater good. And it's a really great way of showing that Charles Xavier, this saint-like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Magneto's Malcolm X, is capable of making serious mistakes and also hiding those mistakes because he must always project a position of strength, something which... Cyclops could have actually related to him on something which Wolverine could have related to him on but they don't do that because it would require guts and understanding of characters and there wasn't enough time to do that in an hour and 39 minutes Another thing, actually, I mentioned this while we were watching it. In uh, Wolverine and the X-Men, the animated show, Wolverine's the one who has to take over leadership and becomes this stoic samurai type, very grave, and, and has to hold it together for the kids. Because Jean's apparently died, Scott's the one who's full of anger and rage and becomes this sort of the gun that Wolverine keeps on his team, but he's like a loose cannon and uh, he uh, can't... Re that was their opportunity to do that in this film. But they don't. They just get rid of Scott. There's lots that they could do with this and don't. I mean, I, this this whole thing about um, shutting off the Phoenix Force, I would be very surprised if the idea for that didn't come from somebody who has read the Onslaught storyline. Yeah. Because there are a lot of similarities. But if you look at how that it doesn't translate, when it's done... In the comic, Eric is not a child, and he has already done terrible things. Oh yeah, it's an it's a last ditch. Like, there's nothing I can do anymore, Eric. Absolutely, it's not speculative. It's not. We can't let this ability develop because that is totally antithetical to everything Charles has always been about. Mm -hmm. It's not about killing people who have potential danger. It's about training them and teaching them to use their power and teaching them to harness it and control it. Not let's shut it up in a box, cross our fingers and hope for the best, shall we? It's best that your mother repress her feelings, bury them deep down where they'll, where they'll never, never bother, bother anyone. Don't worry about it. When it does come out that the, there are huge 
huge ramifications to what he's done. It's still presented in a tone of... Um, well, Phoenix is evil. Uh, he did the well, right thing. That, that, yeah, exactly. That it's releasing it that's the danger, not the locking it up in the first place. Yeah. Now, you could say, well, you're just saying what the movie isn't and complaining about the fact that it didn't meet your standards. No, 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 no. That's mainly because what the movie is is nothing much in particular. There's almost nothing to talk about. It's nonsensical. It's gibberish. They don't know what they're doing. They it- delivered a rushed mess. There is no direction to this film. And it does appear to be almost entirely composed of exposition and bad puns. Exposition. The first few scenes with Charles, he he literally reminds us that he's psychic every few lines, just in case we've forgotten. Yeah. Notably, we get to meet briefly Olivia Williams playing Moira McTaggart here, who we can only assume is the daughter of Rose Byrne's Moira McTaggart of the same name in uh, X-Men First Class, because that way the age matches up. And uh, she tells us, this man here is in a permanent vegetative state. And then at the very end, that's the man that Charles body jacks. Again, slightly ethically questionable. Mm. But it is a bit like, remember this, kids, because this might be important later on. Yeah, she doesn't turn up for any other reason. At least she has the uh, Scottish accent, though. Oh, we have got any grease? Yes, we do. Then grease me up, woman! The other thing that they've done um, in three, which I protested about in one, and then they reversed in two, they have gone back to presenting mutants as powers rather than people. Yeah. Um, one of the things I really liked about two was that they were people first and the powers were secondary. Yeah. And they were integrated into who they were and how they lived their lives. And this is very much, look at what this person can do. What else can you tell us about them? Uh, look at what this other person can do. And they introduced this concept of classifying mutants by number for the first time, for no apparent reason other, other than, than to, to be able to she's say the scale. Jean is more powerful than Magneto. Which, by the way, is like Dragon Ball Z bullshit thinking. It's also ridiculous. How can you classify powers by such a simplistic uh, notion? What it's one through five. I mean, is it is it simply to do with levels of danger to people, to other people? In which case, you know, is it what? What about somebody whose power is not in any way um, threatening? That's a, a level one or a level zero. So that's most of them then. Yeah. What about a homicidal human being? Yeah, indeed. What about a homicidal mutant who can just make one long nail come out of his hand? What about Wolverine? What what grade would you say he is? Is he less powerful than Pyro? What's Batman? He's level five because he will beat everyone. <laughs> See, that's what I'm thinking, talking about. It really just comes down to who's more special than the rest, which is bollocks. It is. Very uh, ridiculous. Speaking and- of Wolverine, by the way, uh, there is that scene in X-Men 2 where he is allowed to unleash because he's protecting the children. And as we pointed out, was extremely well-crafted and actually has motivations uh, in an ethically sound place, despite the fact that Wolverine's going ballistic. However, in this, there's a scene where he carves up a bunch of the Brotherhood. Now, when I first saw it, I thought... This is really annoying me because that bloke's chucking bits of bone at Wolverine and what's he hoping? I'll throw bits of bone at Wolverine and I'll win. 
And that, to me, just seemed like nonsense. Like, the idea being that Magneto would say, nobody attack Wolverine. Dude's crazy. He got knives all over him. Just just don't even try. What actually troubles me about the scene now is entirely different. It's Logan's situation. To begin with, in X-Men 2, he's protecting the kids. In this, he's slaughtering the Brotherhood, who cannot kill him. He's unkillable. What have they got? Like, you know, oh, you shot bone daggers at me. Oh, that, that actually hurts quite a bit. And then, so he just like stab this guy, stab this guy, that guy, end your life, you're dead, blah, 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 blah. So that he can sneak into, like, oh, yeah, low profile again, sneak into Magneto's camp after murdering all of his sentries. He's asleep. No, he, wait, what? Oh, do you not know what death is? I totally know what it is. Let's back it up a little bit to talk about what a hero I am. However, they can't kill him. He really can kill them. All he has to do is punch them out with his adamantium hand. Just punch them, spark out. Knock them out so that they're no longer a threat to him. He doesn't have to slaughter them. He's not protecting anybody. And what does he achieve from, from sneaking in there? He manages to take out a number of very low-powered, most of them young, inexperienced mutants. He doesn't know anything about them. These guys are, are wastrels from the street. They're, you know, they're, they're Morlocks. They're confused kids. They've been uh, sent out to die by Magneto, and, and Wolverine's playing into that. That's fucking savage. In fact, very specifically, that is counter to how the Morlocks are presented when uh, Storm takes over leading them. Yeah. She fights Callisto, who turns up in here, and Storm brutally electrocutes and then we never see any aftermath to that. You never see Halle Berry afterwards going, oh, God, I've never actually killed someone with lightning before, apart from Toad. But apart from Toad... <laughs> you know what happens to a Toad when it's struck by lightning? That. Oh. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's uh, the, the, the casual attitude to the heroes dealing out death. It's really quite horrific. I mean, people were going apeshit about Superman smashing up buildings in uh, Man of Steel. X-Men 3, the murderous Wolverine and Storm. Even Beast, he's fucking snapping necks. And for what? Like I said, these, these are just um, kids who have, are being hunted and they're afraid and they don't know what to do. And they join the Brotherhood because it's right there before them. They don't know how to get into Charles Xavier's Westchester Academy in Posh Town. You know, behind this gated community. They don't have the contacts. They didn't have the opportunity. They're just unlucky. It's an appalling handling of a Shades of Grey situation. You mentioned Beast. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things I can count on one hand, things that I did like, um, Kelsey was Grammer. the... Uh, Kelsey Grammer was, was really good at playing him, but specifically the fact that they have... Hank McCoy as the uh, Secretary for Mutant Affairs, mm. um, even though he is effectively the Minister for Magic, but that's <laughs> by the by. Um, uh, but the, the fact much. that um, Henry is known for being at odds with his mutant nature, yeah. specifically his mutant appearance. The fact that he is the first person who has to, the first mutant, sorry, who has to deal with the prospect of a cure. And his response to this is going to be, um, is going to have implications for all the other mutants. Um, and you, you have a shade of it in that scene where he meets Jimmy Leach and the, the blue fades off his hand. Yeah. 
you can see him almost desperately wanting it and knowing that politically it's the worst decision he could possibly make. Yeah. But again, what do they do with him? They put him in a leather suit and they make him go and punch dudes. Why? He's an entirely different type of character. He is not just Logan, but blue. Similarly, Rogue has been wanting this whole time. I've got to have this thing done. I've got to have this, you know, this cure. I've, I've got no chance of a life otherwise. I've never wanted these powers. Um, that seems to be set up for Rogue to to be wrestling with us. I'm like, oh my god, I've got I've got to do this thing. But ultimately, it's a very selfish move because Professor Xavier has very few soldiers at his disposal uh not just soldiers but peacekeepers that's technically what the x-men are they're not there to fight they're actually there to quell uh combat scenarios although they are most often chucked in there to have a great big fight in comics that's not what xavier set them up for would it not have been much more impactful for rogue to be on the verge of getting the cure and then see that her x-men friends are all fighting and in, in many cases being injured and then go oh, sod this and run off and help them using the powers that she has even though it does mean a life of being condemned to that there's more people outside of her that she can help at the end of it i'm human again yay also that's not something that she appears to have thought through fully i'm human again and can therefore hold hands with my boyfriend because although she does mention the whole thing about you know i i can't touch anybody i can't experience a hug or a handshake handshake. and yes you can stop wearing those off the shoulder numbers and start (laughs) wearing something that covers your neck and you're sorted i mean it's it's relatively easily solved from that perspective i the intimacy thing that's fine i understand that but she comes back to the school for gifted youngsters which she is now going to have to leave because she isn't one anymore and she's when not exactly she a people person, next? so she can hardly be a liaison. Well, exactly. When when's she you know when's she going to see Bobby next? What's to say that once she's left, Bobby isn't going to go? Do you know what? Actually, I think I'd rather be with somebody who still understands the mutant condition. Because let's face it, you're not in that position anymore. And oh, again, hey, it's, Kitty. it's yeah, Kitty, because she's Ellen Page and the only good performer in this movie. Yeah, she pretty much is. No, totally, she is. No, no, there are good performers in there, but no, nobody provides a good performance. Except for Ellen Page. Um, but yeah, now this, again, this is a Shades of Grey situation. It's not us being super judgmental of Rogue and how could you do this? I understand why Rogue did that. But the fact that they didn't make any deal of uh, the fact that she just went, ah, oh, I had it done. And that, they make appeal. Yeah, no consequences no, at all. Yeah. It's a very easy decision. There's no shades of grey and uh, let's, you know, she effectively abandons Charles Xavier's crusade. Which is absolutely fine. And that's her choice. And she does say that, you know, this was my choice. This was something that I wanted to do. But again, it doesn't really seem to be something that is particularly thought through or explored or, you know, and and she's one of the main characters. If you're going to explore that concept with anybody, she's the person to do it with. She's not a weapon of mass destruction. No. But she can be of genuine help. And of course, as you know, if you've read your X-Men, there are times when the X-Men would have lost were it not for Rogue. So she's taking herself off the chessboard. 
Maybe she doesn't want to be used as a pawn. Maybe that's the point, but that's not a point they look at. No. It's not explored. Mm. Speaking of Kitty Pride, I'm the juggernaut, bitch. Oh, right. Okay. This, this scene is another one of those examples of how they've, they've done that thing, which in two was, here's a little bit of background information that we've plucked out of the comics and the lore of the X-Men. And we're just going to drop it in there. And if you see it, great. And if you don't, you don't. They do that in this and they mess them up. And they do it twice with Juggernaut because there's the helmet. When, he's busted out of the prison van he's wearing a helmet which juggernaut wears in the comics specifically to protect his mind from the invading force of charles xavier who in the comics is his stepbrother why does he need that helmet if he's never met charles xavier never had anything to do with him oh it, uh, that doesn't matter that much it's, it's, it is a tiny thing but then he meets charles and he's not wearing the helmet so it, why bother putting the helmet in, well, in this he's a it's born mutant same as in the ultimate universe and he, he doesn't necessarily have any relationship to charles same as wolverine doesn't necessarily have any relationship to Deathstrike or Sabretooth in the first couple they just didn't care all that much uh, but um that's, but it's, it's the fact that this is evidence that they just didn't care all that much that's the least problematic thing about juggernaut in the entire film the most problematic thing is that um they're shipping <laughs> mystique juggernaut and madrox to somewhere <laughs> and um they've got a guard with the cure in you know, like a, a cure gun um why not just cure them just you know like okay yeah psst, psst, psst. you three are now humans and we're going to take you to a normal prison where you will be tried for your actual crimes, but no longer will possess the weapons which make you more of a uh, a special danger to society. What the fuck are they doing letting them keep their powers? Unless they're trying to lure Magneto in, in which case it, no, they weren't. That wasn't the point of this one. The only reason that guy has the gun is so that Magneto can get hold of Juggernaut and Madrox to be used for two completely pointless action sequences... Oh, by the way, if the NSA are tracking them, how come they didn't notice that this giant cluster of mutants then wandered off yet stayed in the same forest while they were scanning their bodies and they're, they're all Madrox? What the fuck? Did they start watching them from 6pm that night? Or what? It only exists so that Raven can be robbed of her powers and for Magneto to go, ugh, what a shame, she's one of them now. And bugger off is like, right, great. So, so he doesn't have any he literally sees people as either mutants or humans and he can't actually relate to you if you're no longer if you no longer possess the ability to shapeshift or do whatever the fuck raven does he doesn't see her as a person anymore he dehumanizes or demutantizes her which makes him not a shades of gray character but a crazy person a crazy evil scumbag which is obviously related to what he does at the end of x-men 2 and then after he rips up the golden gate bridge for no reason, in an act that would exhaust every other version of Magneto, leaving him weak as a kitten for the next few hours, because it's a ridiculous amount of energy to spend to just take a boat trip out to Alcatraz. He then stands there gloating and says, send the pawns in. And then a few seconds later, yes, yes, the pawns. It's like chess, you see, the pawns. Phoenix standing within earshots like, yeah, yeah, I completely believe all of this bullshit political rhetoric you said about how humans are going to subjugate us and they see us only as animals. When, at no point does Phoenix go, hang on a fucking second. 
She's within earshot when he uses the line, they have their weapons, we have, we have ours. ours. And he's blatantly talking about her. Yeah. And... Uh, and mean, she just stands there glowering because there's been nothing written in the script that Phoenix uh, suspects that uh, Eric is treating her just as a tool. And he doesn't come across like like a crazy person. I don't. I mean, I'm not use of the word crazy in this context, notwithstanding. He comes across as a nonsensical person. Everything he does is just again. It we're back to Magneto does whatever cool. the script requires him to do. Yeah. No logic, no rationale, no no even internal rationale that that wouldn't make sense to somebody outside his situation, but makes sense to his own internal arguments because he doesn't actually appear to have any. All of his motivation comes from external sources. Yeah. But the idea of Eric being this sort of uh, Shades of Grey character that could possibly have some relationship to Charles ends uh, just before they reach Alkali Lake in uh, X-Men 2 and doesn't actually return. Never comes back. Ah. <laughs> uh, doesn't actually return until uh, First Class, in which case Magneto is finally a fully formed Shades of Grey character. And fascinating with it. But yeah, no, they, they botched all of these early X-Men films in terms of character, character progression for Eric. Charles gets a better turn of it for the first two films, but Charles is like, wasted in this as well. Oh, also, at one point, uh, Magneto says, they have drawn... I knew that they would draw first blood, referring to the cure. Dude, you tried to kill all humans. You drew first blood. And then some. Oh, we barely talked about the scene where Charles basically gets obliterated and seems bemused. There's not really much to say, is there? No. They go to pick up Jean. She's going ballistic. Charles, uh, Eric could at some point have stopped her, um, but doesn't. Had the cure available to him, doesn't use it. Mm. She's presented terribly in that scene as well. She's she's gone all Carrie White. Yeah. But that's, again, that's what she studied. Carrie. They've, they've neglected to notice that. Carrie was the way she was because of how she was treated by other people, yeah. not because she had this immense ability inside her and that turned her into a very dangerous, evil, unrestrained force. Although the way she looks at that point, they have kind of gone with the whole she's an empty vessel blank slate. You look at her and there's nothing of Famke Janssen left in, in her appearance. They just don't seem to have done it in a particularly good way. For a short time, Storm actually wears a really kind of cool costume. It's when they go to pick she up does, yeah, Cyclops, that flight suit. Cyclops from the uh, the lake, and, and he turns out to have been disintegrated. She's wearing this kind of body-hugging athletic suit with uh, shoulder pads, and it's dark blue, and it actually looks really cool. And it seemed like they were they were trying something out. And it actually looks like something that would allow you to move and breathe and that would be vaguely comfortable and, and that actually might not be too bad to put on a sportsman. And Because that's ultimately what you have to treat the X-Men as, athletes. But they put back on the horrible costumes later. And this last stand that we're talking about, six X-Men, five of whom have been barely characterized throughout the whole three-movie series, two of whom aren't even fucking named. But it doesn't really matter. I've, I've got here the battle is almost entirely composed of one-liners and moves which are set up so that the one-liners can be delivered at the appropriate time. It's, yeah. it's not really a battle. It's a, a, a the script writers showing off and 
badly. This film is a joke and a bad one. If you if you watched it in conjunction with Avengers, you would wonder what the fuck Fox spent the money on. It's it's not even the same league. It's not even the same sport as the Avengers in terms of the potential for big superhero blockbusters. Oh, and Juggernaut says, I need a pee. Vinnie Jones would say, I want to piss. I know it just sounds like nitpicking, but, you know, I need a... It's like, uh, every single line in this film serves to Spartan kick me out of the picture and make me think about the what the process of idiots that actually were put together to make that. As far as uh, I'm the Juggernaut bitch goes, I'm going to play a bit of this horrible, painful clip which I'm sure loads of you have seen on YouTube. It wasn't funny then. It's not funny now. It apparently is something that Brett Ratner found hilarious. And uh, he, he put it on his website uh, because it's just that good. It's, I mean, if you haven't ever seen it before, just imagine that a bunch of bozos uh, have dubbed themselves in their living room over a bit of the X-Men cartoon. And it's got really... Uh, creepy undertones of rape and sexual violence to it. So, enjoy. Yeah, it's the juggernaut, bitch. Yeah, Charles, I'll beat the shit out of you. Get off me, bitch. Who the fuck are you? Uh, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm the juggernaut, bitch. I'm yeah, a motherfucker. I'm going to whoop your ass. Silly bitch, your weapons cannot harm me. Don't you know who the fuck I am? I'm the juggernaut. Hey, hey. Oh, motherfucker, I'm going to forget. Your mama doesn't do Charles. Shut the fuck up, Charles. I'm going to beat your ass. <laughs> Too fast, Weaver. You better run, Charles. Get that shit out of my face, bitch. Don't you know the fuck I am? Oh, she's fucking with my helmet. I got this shit in fourth grade. Oh, no! My face. Pimp smack your ass, bitch. You my hooker now. Now it's time for me to take my prize. I'm gonna rape you, bitch. You ready? You ready? You ready, huh, bitch? You ready, bitch? Shut the fuck up, Charles. Shut the fuck up, Charles. No! Charles, you got my head. I'm the juggernaut, bitch. This goes on for nine minutes. It has six million views. I weep for all humanity. And it was allowed, nay positively encouraged, to infect the X-Men movie universe by half-wits. Don't you know who I am? I'm the juggernaut, bitch! How he could say anything at that point, given that knowing how Kitty Pride's powers work, she's fused his pelvis with the concrete at that point. Fortunately, the filmmakers don't know how Kitty Pride's powers work. No, they don't, because then he rips free of the floor, which... Is, is made of polystyrene. So it would appear. And then he bonks his head, and he may as well have tweeting birds at that point. It's also important to note, by the way, that the target audience for this, kids, like Lyra, who sits in rapt attention watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe, she wandered off about 20 minutes into the film and didn't come back till the very end. She was bored out of her mind. So this doesn't even appeal to kids. Although they were really, really trying. The scene in which Pyro faces down... Uh, Bobby, I can't yeah. even call him Iceman. He's far too young for me to refer to him as Iceman at this point. Um, but you've got this this firepower versus ice power, and oh my god, were they trying Just... to evoke Goblet of Fire at that point? Yeah, which came out a year previously. Indeed. Just well, in time what, for people to copycat. We'll stop making the Harry Potter parallels if you do. And I don't understand why the only solution to Jean 
going Phoenix shit and blasting the whole entire island is Logan sacrificing himself to basically walk up there and stab her. I mean, they are surrounded by cartridges of the cure. They have Leech right there. Get him sneaked up behind her, problem solved. There's no tactical understanding in the... Uh, I don't know. It, it, it comes down to the fact that they, they had to kill Phoenix for the terrible things she'd done. You can't just cure her and bring back Jean. I don't know. The, this you is, say that, it's been done. <laughs> yeah. This is a horrible and depressing movie. And I really wish it hadn't been made. It even finishes this, like, it's like, the X-Men trilogy is now over. It's like, seriously, that was a trilogy? Okay, right. So, it's it's all happy now. Humans and mutants, you know, mutants have the, the option of having the cure or not. And humans are all happy about it. There was almost no human, like, non-mutant perspective on the cure. You got all these people demonstrating outside the uh, clinic going, we don't need a cure, we don't need a cure. What about on the other side of the street, a fuck ton of humans going, yes, you do. It seems like the mutants are the only ones who have any perspective on this particular scenario. What about other billions of people who got a pretty severe migraine a few months ago? I don't know, it could have been a few years ago, considering how long Jean's hair has grown underwater. Oh, yes, that's the other thing. The Phoenix Force is apparently capable of complete makeovers. (sighs) <sighs> so yeah this one's going to be superman threed out of continuity i believe mm-hmm. uh, by it, brian singer who's keen on doing that sort of thing the reason it makes me so angry and i will admit this is because i was so looking forward to a phoenix film oh yeah and they fucked the phoenix story now and when you fuck up a story like this it really can't be done again for quite some time they're never going to be able to do Wolverine origin the proper way, the actual uh, uh, story as written by Paul Jenkins because of X-Men Origins Wolverine, which pretty much covers everything in that book in 12 seconds of intro. Cheers for that one. Thanks for that one. Didn't need to be done. Oh, dear me. So would you recommend this film for people? I would not. No. In fact, I I would say not only don't watch this film, but but just siphon it awareness of it from your head it doesn't exist i would say i would like it to be struck from history but i think i think fox are going to do that anyway (laughs) (laughs) do you reckon but no because you see those who fail to remember history are doomed to repeat it history is won by the victors and in this case any x-men film that follows this can only be better than x-men 3 we shall see with x-men origins colon wolverine coming very soon to a rant near you. Any other bits and bobs? It's going to go through my notes here. Oh, we didn't mention Ben Foster as Angel. Oh, he was shit. <laughs> Moving on. That's probably why we didn't mention him. <laughs> ben Foster, have you ever seen 310 to Yuma? He will not allow anybody else to act in the room if he can't go, Nicholas caging it. He was opposite Christian Bale and tried to outmad him. Imagine trying to be in a film with Christian Bale and Russell Crowe and shouting, look at me, look at me. That's Ben Foster. <laughs> he sounds like a charmer. He's kind of perfectly cast in 30 Days of Night, where it's like, yeah, try to run, try to hide. They're coming. Look at me, look at me. I'm the vampire familiar. Oh, my God, that was him? Yeah. What an eccentric performance. Good grief. It just shows what you can do to a man by not letting him shave for a couple of days, doesn't it? Yeah. Because 
Warren's supposed to be this sort of, well, angel, you know, devastating looking. Yeah. Like uh, Chris Hemsworth should have played him. Or Matthew McConaughey a few years ago. He's probably a bit past it now. Yeah. Also, the bit where Storm, like, she does several, like, spinny, twisty hurricane spins around to, like, move around. Storm never does that in the comics, though. They just made this shit up. And unfortunately, they made Halle Berry spin around, like, spun by wires. And she was violently sick. That's something you really can do just with CGI. It's not going to look any better. Maybe that was the deal. You want more pay, Halle Berry? Fine. (laughs) You're going to work for it. Oh, and at the very end, when Magneto goes, I'm moving a chess piece, and it really does move. It's not like the end of Inception where you're like, did it stop? Is it about to stop? It it moves. That implies the cure isn't absolute, and that you can get stabbed with three the cures and still be not at all cured. So it's kind of like everything, every event in this film is all bollocks. Because the mutants can be cured, and yet the cure doesn't actually work. And, you know, Charles can be killed, but the Grim Reaper doesn't actually work. And Magneto could be stopped, but he'll still come back. I'd like to know, actually, this is a completely futile line of discussion, because given the things that happen in this, that they completely and utterly fail to give any rational explanation for, why on earth should they give any rational explanation for this one? Mm-hmm. How does Charles possess the mind of a man in a vegetative state? Where is the seat of his telepathic powers? Because if he is a mutant as in born with a gene that causes his brain to develop in such a way oh, that it has telepathic powers. It's got to have a, an anchor to his, his uh, mutant body. Exactly. Once you've shredded that body into so many molecules and scattered it to the four winds, is it, is it his soul? Have we gone totally metaphysical It's here? his astral projection. He's able to move but where is that astral, astral projection plane, from? Sequel. 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 That's the answer. I know you tell me I have to have more of an argument than. But if they don't, I don't have to. Sequel. It's the only answer and explanation. And of course it fucking worked because he's back. (sighs) See you later, folks. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And your handshake complete. Shredded to pieces. Fucked. Is it cool? (laughs) Sequel? (laughs) X-Men Origins Wolverine. All the horrible things in your life. (laughs) The father... Knowing that the woman you loved was hunted down. I can make all this go away. Putting together a special team. With special privileges. Join me, but you will have your revenge. I want new ones. And what do you want them to say? 
Wolverine. Become the animal. Embrace the other side. I think he heard you. Stop him. You just spent half a billion dollars making him indestructible. I know who you are, Gambit. Do you even know how to kill me? I'm going to cut your head off. See if that works. <laughs> We're back to review the fourth X-Men movie and first of what's likely to be numerous solo Wolverine outings, this time directed by Gavin Hood of Ender's Game and Tsutsi. This was a loose adaptation of the Weapon X storyline from the 1988 ongoing Wolverine comic series, which explored how Logan got the unbreakable adamantium bonded to his skeleton. It also has a fleeting reference to Paul Jenkins' Majestic Origin miniseries from 2001, notably now available as a motion comic that I'm willing to bet decent money is superior to this. Three years after X-Men 3 The Last Stand artificially closed off the ongoing mutant struggle for acceptance, creating a mock trilogy in doing so, Fox pushed forwards with two spin-off projects. One of them was a story about Magneto, which got adapted into a reboot to create a roughly in-continuity prequel, X-Men First Class. The other was this Wolverine picture, featuring what was perceived as the most bankable character in the series, someone who, since the 90s, had become nearly as synonymous with Marvel as Spider-Man and the Hulk, and more recently, Iron Man. This was written by Skip Woods, the man responsible for the most recent and by far the worst Die Hard movie script. That would be A Good Day to Die Hard, the fifth one. Is it? Is that what that's called? Yeah, it is. No, the other one's called um, Live Long or Die Hard. Live no. Long or Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's, uh, the, that's the Star Trek. They can have that one for Die Hard 6. <laughs> no, it was um, Live Free or Die Hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, he wrote the fifth one, the shit one, the really shit one in Russia. He also wrote Hitman. I say wrote. Uh, he also wrote Swordfish and his best work, The A-Team. Also, David Benioff, writer of tedious, forgotten sandal botherer Troy, heavily involved with adapting Game of Thrones. The film was mostly shot in Australia and New Zealand, with Canada also serving as a location. Production and post-production were troubled, with delays due to the weather and Jackman's other commitments. An incomplete screenplay that was still being written in Los Angeles while principal photography rolled in Australia, conflicts arising between director Hood and Fox's executives, and an unfinished work print being leaked on the internet one month before the film's debut. So if you can imagine this one, Sharon... Green screens and wire work everywhere. Eesh. And like Wolverine slashing about with pretend claws that weren't there. I was going to say, that would have looked awful. <laughs> Gavin Hood and Fox were in dispute on the film's direction. One of the disputes involved the depiction of Wolverine as an army veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder, with the executives arguing that audiences would not be interested in such heavy themes. Ugh. What's wrong with this Wolverine? These cans are defective. He's exploding and I don't understand why. 
Hugh Jackman later confessed being unhappy with the final result of X-Men Origins Wolverine. The actor wanted primarily a film that would deepen the Wolverine character, but somehow, somehow, <clears throat> read, due to Fox executives fucking meddling, same as they did with X-Men 3, the first Wolverine movie ended up looking like the fourth X-Men, just with different characters. He tried to avert the same results while doing the next solo film for the character's 2013 The Wolverine. And you'll find out very soon whether that was any good. Okay, so we've got a ton of bullet points to get through. There was a surprising amount to talk about in this one, actually. I expected just to sort of watch it with my head slumped in my hands and go, that was shit. But again, like all the other ones, it's not... A, a case of just across the board missed opportunities. There are some good bits in it. I'll say straight off, it's not the worst X-Men film. I think X-Men 3 still holds that brown shit-coloured crown. I was also quite surprised. Um, I wasn't expecting... I think I was expecting this to be not as bad as The Last Stand, but almost as bad as The Last Stand. And I think I, my conclusion was that it was actually superior in several ways. Okay, uh, the first thing that I knew about this film uh, was that they were going to be involving elements of Origin, which is Paul Jenkins' uh, six-issue miniseries, as I mentioned before. Um, I can say straight off, buy this book. Buy it on Comixology if you're buying digital books. Uh, buy it in paper form if you care about X-Men and Wolverine in general, uh, but haven't read this yet. This is the one to read. Uh, it's actually one of the things that kind of inspired the t cartographer's handbook and for me to actually visit uh, this era of storytelling presented a science fiction style superhero story in a Tom Sawyer secret garden context and it's a wonderful emotionally charged kind of delicate story it, it doesn't just play out as you'd expect X-Men Origins Wolverine very much plays out as you'd expect uh, Origin not so much uh, they take they cherry pick what they consider to be the most important bits of Origin or elements of Origin in four minutes for the beginning of this film, and that's it. The character of Victor Creed in this film is analogous with the character of Dog Logan in Origin, who is uh, James Howlett, which is Logan's real name, uh, his half-brother. It was never made explicitly clear that Dog Logan is Sabretooth. In fact, I think Paul Jenkins has gone on record as saying Dog Logan is most definitely not Sabretooth. So this led to you saying, well, why is he called Victor Creed if his name wasn't actually Logan? Yeah, I, I, could, I just, I couldn't quite put them together, like where they decided to, to change the names in that, yet keep the names as they were in the origin book, if they'd actively changed the characters, and if Victor was going to go on to be Victor Creed... At what point did he decide to be Creed instead of Logan? And then you pointed out that I was probably thinking about it much harder than they had. Yeah. And it was probably a waste of time. They simply pointed at Dog Logan when he'd grown up and gone, well, he's Sabretooth, isn't he? And uh, in, even if he's not, we need him to be Sabretooth for this one. So uh, it, they condense it and they, they um, make it very 
simple for the audiences. There is so much that was in Origin that's not in this. There's a huge amount of, like, James Howlett being the young Wolverine is a very sickly, very shy, uh, kind of spoiled, quiet little boy. He spends most of his... He's Colin in The Secret Garden. He spends most of his time on his own. And um, his father retains a young girl named Rose to, uh, I suppose, tutor him and to draw him out of his shell. And uh, he gets very attached to her. And the whole time you're thinking this boy Dog, who's treated very badly by his father, the gardener and groundskeeper, whose name is Logan and looks exactly like Wolverine, and he's a horrible little shit. You're thinking, Christ, this Logan kid was horrible. Wolverine was a little fucker. But as it turns out, it's the sickly boy, James, that turned out to be the Wolverine we know. And Dog Logan grows up to be somebody with a genuine vendetta against James. And after the scenario at the beginning of this film, Rose, who is entirely absent from this story, and James run off together to British Columbia, where they work in a a timber camp. And there's a whole second half of the story there, where where they're young teenagers, and James kind of finds out who he is there. And there's a really heart-wrenching, tragic ending, which explains why... Wolverine cares so much about a certain other redhead as she symbolizes this girl that he let down. But there's none of that. <laughs> when, you know, I was, this film was going to come out, I was like, maybe they'll do a lot more origin. You know, I was thinking this is going to be like the Batman Begins of Wolverine. Is it going to be? Because I, I, I had no faith in the X-Men franchise at this point. It had gone from, oh, it's all right, to that was pretty good, to that was terrible. So I didn't really expect too much, but there was potential with this one. I was thinking, you know, if they, they, they use this as a, like, the, you know, with all the flashback scenes in um, Batman Begins where it goes to uh, Tibet. I was thinking, well, that's how you characterize Wolverine. You show the making of him. But they went, ah, no one cares about this. And from the sounds of what the uh, execs were saying about, we don't want post-traumatic stress disorder in this character. No one cares. They would never have signed off on a a Wolverine story that's not an action film. The thing is, though, they say that, that they don't want any post-traumatic stress disorder or anything like that. It's still the fucking there. sequence is was. What do they think it, that is going to do to somebody? It's still fucking there. It's just not explored. Just don't talk so about it. So what they mean is keep it light. Keep it light. We don't want to talk about it. One thing, actually, that really frustrates Complicated me. things make people feel confused and scared. Yeah, that's, that's of course, why Inception did so very badly at the box office. Of course. Um, I think what, what frustrated me most about the... the is botching too strong a word to use? Um, the uh, the ditching of so much of the origin storyline mm-hmm. uh, was actually not to do with what they cut because they they did sort of they obviously looked at it and went right. What do we think are the key elements of this? And that's fair enough. But by making um, James and Victor run off hand in hand. You never have that period of him being completely alone. You never have that well, sense. Well, you do at the end. Well, no, but I mean in, in his, in his youth and in the, in the escape from the house and the aftermath of that tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, although, yes, in the book he has Rose, he doesn't have anybody who has that, look, you and me are the same and we, we can uh, deal with this together. 
Because yeah. um, in that, the comics, he did not grow up hanging out with Victor Creed all the absolutely time. Absolutely not, no. They, they definitely crossed paths many times, but he was not... That, this bond of them being brothers side by side all the time throughout the ages, they invented that for the film. And I actually don't dislike it. I lo- That's one of the things I do like about X-Men Origins Wolverine. They've uh, capitalised on this bond. Agreed. But I, just in that instance, in that first sort of immediate situation i just think it's it's kind of dispensed with one of the the elements of origin that i like the most which is that he does this terrible thing and then he has to reconcile that all by himself yeah but you know looking at the 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 way this film developed it, it was wishful thinking on our parts for it to be anything like origin true Anyway, so let's let's not bitch about how it's not like something good. Let's bitch about why it is something why bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, so yeah, next up you've got the uh, the montage of various different uh, war sequences. Again, they they uh, shifted time a bit um, and put it back a little bit further. It was actually the tail end of the nineteenth century in uh, origin, but they put it before then, say the beginning of the nineteenth century, to allow Logan to be old enough to fight in the Civil War, on the Union side, of course, which is nice. I suppose it puts him very much in the... Nice. I suppose it puts him very much in the foreground of American wars, and, and it's sort of, you know, he's a patriot. Uh, at the same time, you could also say that he has this rather unsavory ability to be drawn into any particularly savage conflict. True. There's also a slight problem with that patriot thing. He's Canadian. <laughs> Well, the, there were many Canadian troops in the Union Army, and indeed, at least they said that he was born in Alberta. If I, I seem to remember, uh, Hugh Jackman was uh, at a, uh, had only just been announced as Wolverine and, and, and had visited Canada for like a, you know, to, to check it out. And uh, somebody stopped him in a gas station and said, uh, "You're going to make him Canadian, right?" And he was like, "Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, that's not going to be uh, omitted." And, um, in fact, if you've ever seen Pride of the X-Men, the pilot for the X-Men show that eventually became the 1992 ongoing series, you'll see an Australian Wolverine. <laughs> Oi! Kitty Pride! This one-off, unsuccessful X-Men pilot from the late 80s would appear to be where the makers of X-Men 2 got the ethical and emotional qualities of Magneto nailed down. I've done it! I've captured the Scorpio Comet! In less than a day, most of the human race will be wiped out. The mutants will rule the Earth! This is it, true believers. Unless the X-Men can stop Magneto, mankind is doomed. What happened? Are you all right? What is it? Magneto... He's changed the course of the comet Scorpio directly towards Earth. The power, it hit me like a fist. If Scorpio strikes Earth, it'll send up a cloud of dust and debris, which will block out the sun for years. And our planet will be plunged into the Ice Age. And we've got to stop it. Hold it! The kid stays here. She'll just get in the way. I will not. And stop calling me a kid. I am 14 years old. I'm sorry, Kitty. But Wolverine's right. You haven't been trained. It's much too dangerous. You'll stay here. Until later, my child. Oh, yeah? I'll show you... I'll show you all. So yeah, the Logan brothers fight in many wars together. 
and uh, you get Harry Gregson Williams' score. But this one actually has, it's got overtones of Metal Gear Solid, of, of which um, there, there's odd similarities between Solid Snake and Wolverine, and it, it that actually fits very well with this particular aesthetic they're going for. Logan as this eternal warrior. We're going to call him Logan rather than James the whole way through, even though his real name is James. He starts using Logan very early on. I think um, it, once they actually cut to um, scenes where dialogue is happening rather than it all being visual, um, although Victor calls him James a couple of times, once they meet Stryker, he's calling him Logan pretty much off the bat, so I'm guessing he changed his name fairly early in this Stryker only ever events. calls him Logan as well. Yeah. In fact, that's the only name that gets put on his um, dog tags. Yes. Wolf tags. Wolverine tags. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just to reiterate, his name was James Howlett, and his brother was Victor Logan, and they changed their names to James Logan and Victor Creed. For no apparent reason. Other than don't ask questions. Yeah. Um, you see why I would be confused? I are confused. So Danny Houston comes in as William Stryker, and I, I remember when I uh, first saw 30 Days of Night, in fact, I think I even mentioned it on the Digital Cowboys podcast about it. My God, this guy's like a young Brian Cox. So uh, that's as, as perfect a casting <laughs> as I could uh, imagine. He is very good, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say very good. He doesn't have much to work with. He isn't as impactful as Cox's striker. Yeah, considering how little he has to work with, I think he's very good. He gets the um, the threat of striker across. He gets the uh, the pure viciousness of of what this man will do. For yes. it's never quite clear whether it's an ideology or whether it's <clears throat> um, uh, something that he feels is his duty. Because he's, I think he says at one point that even though he's he's realised that his son is now a mutant he took an oath but there's never any indication that he gets anything other than um, pleasure out of doing what he does true I think the thing he uh, captured that Cox manages in X-Men 2 is that all of that fear he has boiling beneath the surface he keeps it in check all the time and he's always ever so slightly smirking and uh, uh, speaking in a, in a, a sort of quiet uh, assertive manner to get what he needs to get done so that the thing that is causing him the fear can be dealt with. Hmm. Hmm. He's a he's a very very angry man that hides that. Yes. So then we get to Team X. Uh, one of the weakest parts of the film. This is when the, the the guys who are just total badasses talk to each other in a totally badass way. We do get to see uh, th there are two Deadpool's in this film. One of them is played by uh, Ryan Reynolds. The other guy at the end, there's a guy who's uncredited as playing Weapon 
XI or 11 or whatever the fuck he's called. He sure as shit isn't Deadpool. And I don't, I don't actually believe that that was Ryan Reynolds. Played by a man named Scott Adkins. Basically seasoned as playing a henchman, a stuntman, and a fighter. They may have CG'd his eyes in, because he's got those puppy dog eyes, even as Deadpool. Even yeah. as this terrifying creature. But um, it may just be that they got a guy who had similar eyes to uh, Ryan Reynolds. In fact, it may simply be that the, the Deadpool that we see is because Ryan Reynolds was also doing Green Lantern. And, and so playing wasn't... him very similarly to how he plays Wade. But that's the thing. The, the idea being that, well, we wanted to have Deadpool, but we can't because he's not here. So let's sort of do a lumbering nobody. But, I, okay, so as Wade Wilson... They, I get that he's twisted and fucked up and he says things to get a rise out of people and he's fearless and, um, he's, I mean, you know, Deadpool is, is pretty good with, uh, okay, right, well, I actually went through a list of Deadpool's powers. Let's reel them off, shall we? Because he has a lot. Yeah, uh, it wasn't really made clear what his powers were in this. I think being fast enough to block bullets with his, Samurai swords and, and redirect them is, is one of them. Uh, he has a regenerative healing factor, which every one of Wolverine's enemies has to have, otherwise they automatically are going to die. There's yes. no way you can take on Wolverine without a healing factor. He has superhuman stamina, agility, flexibility and reflexes. He has devices that allow for teleportation and holographic disguise. He carries a magical satchel. He has extended longevity. He has immunity to telepathy. He's a master martial artist, swordsman and marksman. And he's also immortal. So basically, <sighs> under his entry in the mutant book, it just says, fantastically awesome. I'm Deadpool, and I have many powers. Absolutely. <laughs> and he's better Yeah, he's basically Bullrog from uh, that episode of South Park. Indeed. And, and the also, Emperor from The Magical three. Satchel, he has Hermione's um, undetectable extension charm bag. He has Mary Poppins' bag. <laughs> I don't know what's in it. But either way, if everyone who knows Deadpool knows that this was sort of a little bit of a tissue-thin glimpse of Deadpool here. But also that he's not really that bankable of a star. They were thinking about doing a Deadpool spin-off, but they'd fucked this so badly that they decided against it. Um, so, yeah, he turns up, he cracks wise, he jumps out of the lift, he's flashing off his swords, and, and, and that's it. That's pretty much all we get. Every, yeah... One of the best things about Deadpool in every other medium, uh, which requires acting, is that Nolan North plays him pretty much all the time and has really got a bead on the character. So he's got this great patter as playing Deadpool. So the animated version, the video game version, that's your real Deadpool. This guy, not so much. But I'm not going to complain that much because it wasn't like, a oh, they, they could have, that, that character had limitless potential. He's not that good of a character. I was, he's great in small doses, but I'm actually really not sure I'd like a, a full Deadpool movie. I don't, I think it would, it would be, it would really break the fourth wall and it would require a, a director with, I suppose, Edgar Wright could do it. Well, it would have to be done with a comedy slant because, I mean, somebody who's got that many powers, what's left that you could do to them? Indeed. So, oh, uh, there was a small storm averted here uh, in terms of the fact that um, <laughs> a young storm was supposed to turn up in this. Remember when they almost showed Storm's origin in uh, the original X-Men? Well, they've avoided it again. So, well done them. Let's let's not add any extra depth or scope to these characters. Good idea. 
Although she does turn up, or at least it looks like her, uh, in uh, X-Men First Class. There's a, there's a white-haired black girl uh, in Cerebro when, it's, he's, uh, when Charles puts it on for the first time. Although 60 for the age isn't right. Here's the great Nolan North showing us all how you really do Deadpool. Logan, we missed you. That Web and X just hasn't been the same without you. Nobody calls me Bub anymore. And Omega Red's a bedwetter. One day I will tear out your flipping tongue and something. He's very ashamed. Despite Deadpool's idiocy, Weapon X is indeed pleased to have you back, Logan. We put considerable time and money into you. And pointy things. Jackman playing it serious. And this is a big deal, because if Jackman had just taken the paycheck and Sean Connery'd his way through this, and just gone, fuck it, I'm getting paid for this, ah, I don't care, just done it like Diamonds Off Forever, that might have sunk the fucking series. Or at least it might have sunk the Wolverine character, because people would have been like, we don't really want to see Wolverine again. But he, really, as always, throws himself into it. He even did this in X-Men 3. So I do have a lot of respect for uh, for Jackman actually committing to the character, and he knows it better than anyone else, with the possible exception of Steve Blum, but even then. He certainly knows this version in and out. Oh, yeah. He's he's played him so many times now, and, and he obviously... This is obviously a character who means a great deal to him, and you're right, he, he throws himself into these films so completely. He was one of the few barely acceptable things about X-Men 3. <laughs> So the fact that this is all focused on him... And the Oscar for Barely Acceptable goes to... (laughs) And the Oscar for Unacceptable goes to everyone else at X-Men 3. Yeah, whatever fucker watched it before it went in the tin and went, yeah, that'll do. So yeah, he he puts a lot of heart into the uh, character and and does his, uh, his... I would say his usual performance, but he remains consistent throughout the series, is, is probably the best way of putting it. So anyway, he's heavily involved in a, uh, a loving relationship with someone named Kayla Silverfox, who, from her name it would, and uh, what she talks about, would appear to have Native American heritage, or possibly First Nation, since she comes from Canada. And uh, she goes through her shtick about the legend of the Wolverine, which I actually couldn't help but get caught up in, because I love... Uh, fables like that. Did you feel this was too much or too little? No, I thought it was it was really sweetly told actually, and I think there's because she's a teacher, isn't she? Mm-hmm. So I I really got the idea that sort of you know this was a little story that she tells to her students and is something that she thought was sweet and funny and um, oddly appropriate. She's very convincing even when there's a sharp right turn in the character later on. And I think it would be reasonable to say that the Rose element of origin has kind of been pushed forward. Yeah. To wit, I kind of wish she'd been in it more. Mm. Yeah. Although I think there is a, a character called Silver Fox who's incorporated into Wolverine's history in the comics anyway, isn't there? Yeah, I think she was a member of Alpha Flight. I could be wrong on that. Hang on. Uh, no, that was um, uh, that was Heather that he was involved with. Who's oh, in Alpha Heather's Flight. in this as well. Is she? Yep. I missed that one. No, you didn't. Heather and Travis Hudson are the old couple. Oh, and Pa, fuck it, Oh my god. They're only 
function is to basically take in Logan and uh, give him shelter and, and uh, the milk of human kindness. So they turned them into Ma and Pa fucking Kent. They didn't want there to be a, a weird sexual frisson with the, uh, the the woman of the house. Reasonable, I suppose. And also having Wolverine interact with a female character <clears throat> who isn't young, nubile and available was and probably he can't just idea. win over by taking off his shirt. Yeah, which he does frequently. I think, well, well, how many minutes did we count before he took his seven. shirt off? It wasn't long. Firing squad first, shirt off next. Yes. Followed immediately by his firing squad buddy, Leave Schreiber as Victor Creed. Leave Schreiber needs to be in more stuff. One of the things I was most pissed off about uh, regarding the original X-Men uh, back in the day, it doesn't burn anywhere near as much now because I've had this, is how much of a lumbering, lunk-headed nobody the depiction of Sabretooth was. He was a lackey. He was a nothing character. Uh, Leave Schreiber makes him as threatening, as psychologically brutal, uh, and as much of a stalking presence as Victor Creed in the comics. He's always scared the living shit out of me. And there's a scene with uh, uh, where Creed and uh, Dominic Monaghan, Bolt, uh, are in the caravan together. It doesn't it doesn't take on Anton Chigar levels or um, Inglorious Bastards levels of tension, but it could have done with a better director, more time, and uh, a steadier hand. He has that. There's that same level of unspoken absolute terror. Part of that, uh, how that scene works, though, is uh, Dominic Monaghan. I have to say, he's really sold that mm, with a tiny role mm, of yeah. an unnamed character no one will remember from the comics. With a shitty mutant power as well. Although I, I thought one of the things that um, that really impressed me about the framing of that was how uh, they pull back so that you can see the whole fair. And then after the scream, all the lights go out. Mm-hmm. And it, it, the suggestion is that basically he was responsible for powering the whole camp. Nice. Um, and it's, it's that idea of... Um, you can tell yourself if, you know, if you're involved in um, going around and winking certain people out of existence, it's very easy to tell yourself that um, you're doing the right thing. As they uh, talk about later on, um, that they're protecting people by taking out these mutants that are incredibly dangerous and yada, yada, yada. Um, but ultimately, the, all of these people were dependent on him. And there are, there's all these lives that are touched by this one death. Yeah. Or that wasn't the intention at all, and it was just that in the stress of his uh, final seconds, he put out all the lights. Also a possibility. Yeah. Not how I'm choosing to interpret it. Cool. Let's <laughs> overinterpret here, because frankly, if we underinterpret, then this film, this podcast will be half a second long. If it, if something has the capacity for overinterpretation, that's a good thing. It's when they cut off the possibility for interpretation <laughs> at every available turn that that's bad. Dead. Show's over. Show's never over for us, Bradley. Victor. Aren't you going to invite me in? Yeah. Come on in. You know, I've never said anything to anyone about what happened. I'm living a totally different life now, Victor. I always thought it would be weird. Come knocking at my door. Well, 
it's gone. You're afraid of dying. How do you know? You've never tried it before. The scene where Silver Fox pitches up dead. I don't know if uh, I actually would have emotionally engaged with it more if they hadn't pulled to the crane shot of him going, no, and shaking his fist at the sky. Damn you, Salazar! In the same way as he did with Gene in the uh, in X-Men 3. Uh, a moment still incredibly raw with me and made me sad and angry. Not the actual death, the death of the franchise. I don't think I took against that scene particularly possibly because the Wolverine legend was still very fresh in my head, and so I, I saw that as him howling at the moon, basically. The crane shot is, is done deliberately in as many shitty TV thrillers as possible. So, you know, uh, someone is dead and, and they were a fragile person that you were trying to look after, and then the crane shot goes up and you go, ah! It's been done a billion times to the point where our mind pretty much just sort of settles into the camera movements because we've mm. seen it so many times. Yeah. Um, which is why things like, say, the death at the end of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix are so impactful because it doesn't do exactly that. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's... it. When you're familiar with filmic language the way you are, it, it becomes something that you, you just expect to see. You know that shot means someone's dead. Yeah. And not just that the shot, but the music swells up... the emotion yeah again that's why i love it when they pull out the sound and they leave you alone with this horrible situation instead uh the creed fight uh we'll rush through this one you get to see the bone claws which uh back in fatal attractions that i mentioned uh, in the last episode where we talked about x-men 3 um magneto pulls all of the uh, adamantium out of wolverine's body then everyone's thinking oh my god wolverine now sucks He's got no claws left. This guy's not going to be interesting at all. And then in the, the, that issue, I think it's Wolverine 75, he's barely holding his body together and Gene's having to hold the spaceship they're escaping from Avalon uh, in um, together whilst trying to keep him alive. And his bone claws pop out. And you're like, oh my God, they were there all along. And that was the first time you find out that they were there. And of course, that comes back in uh, Origin, where when he first pops his claws, that's an in incredibly traumatic event. But here we get to see them. And they look more realistic and more um, solid than his adamantium claws later in the film. They do. And also, the way they've done the bone claws is much more similar to the way the adamantium claws uh, the way that I am used to the adamantium claws being presented in comic form and cartoon form, which is in the form of, of almost circular claws that yeah. come out of the back of his hand. The, the flat blades coming out from <clears throat> in between his fingers <clears throat> is, is just in the films, if I remember rightly. Yeah. And that actually doesn't fit with the bone claws because where are they? Where are the bone claws in that? They'd be sticking out of the sides of the adamantium. Well, yeah, the actual shape of the adamantium claws doesn't quite match the uh, the bone claws. I actually like them the coming out of the inside of his uh, uh, knuckles rather than out of the top of his hand. Mm. Uh, it's always bothered me that if you if you hold your arm up in front of you, everyone do this right now, and just sort of tilt your wrist and try to imagine the actual physics 
of this thing and like where you'd conceal these claws and wouldn't they create these enormous great horrible ridges on your arms and how fucking painful they'd be all the time and and just the incorporation of them into the human body just doesn't feel natural at all for some reason out of the inside of the knuckles they can be secreted within the arm which actually makes more sense it still doesn't really work with the whole bending of the wrist. Maybe they're in the arm and nowhere near the actual hand at all unless you... All I know is it's hard to make the action figures with bendable arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the claws are incredibly bendable and yeah. don't look solid whatsoever. Because you can't send out Wolverine action figures with very, very solid claws because kids will poke each other's eyes out. Yes, they will. Either way, uh, that was something I really didn't object to. And in the original uh, X-Men 1, 2, and 3, Hugh Jackman was using these sort of like... They were like three long blades joined uh, with a sort of a crossbar in the middle. And he would hold the crossbar in his hands and the blades would protrude through his fingers and they would feel very, very solid and very much linked to him. And obviously during the fight scenes... When it was dangerous, they would, he would have rubber claws or he would have, they would occasionally CG them when it was very dangerous and he was poking them in people's faces. In this, they're always CG and it fucking shows. There is something really off about these. I've heard them referred to as placeholder CG and they just never went over it again and made them best. Oh my god. Lazy. Oh no, that, that just—that's what they look like. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were placeholder. Ah, just, right. They okay, just sorry. feel like they're placeholder. I mean, they feel like they were made on Microsoft Paint. <laughs> they're not. Um, they don't reflect. They're not shiny. They're quite matte, aren't they? Or, or they're shiny, but there's no reflections in them. Or what, mm. what it is there is very artificial. They're just—they—they they don't catch the light right. There's something that doesn't look quite real they're, about they're, them. They're too bright or, mm. or too matte or they, they, they don't seem like they're there. Incidentally, the, um, uh, having the, the hand piece that um, Jackman actually held for the, the other films, um, if you look closely at the Marvel Lego Wolverine, <clears throat> he's holding little claw <laughs> uh, frames in his hands. Yeah. Which kind of makes perfect sense for a little Lego guy if you still want him to be able to hold onto the, say, the handles of a motorbike. Okay, so yeah, the, you get the Creed fight, but the, the best thing about this is the, the Wild West kind of, you know, squaring off against each other in this knackered uh, old sort of thrown together bar saloon type thing. And, and uh, that's, that's where all of the, um, the best aspects of this film come through the tension between these two guys. It's not really about the actual fighting, which once it starts, you just sort of start to snooze because you've seen Wolverine fight a bunch of people all over the place. And that's the thing that people don't seem to get when they're making Wolverine movies. We've seen Wolverine fight. It's been done. So it really comes down to what you can conjure up for something to really emotionally affect Logan. I think... What carried it for me was that um, because of the early setup, because you've got the whole seeing them in these all of these um, conflicts together, um, and particularly when it gets to Vietnam and things start to get really, really nasty, although I think the point at which it appears that Logan starts to work out that Victor's enjoying this whole thing a little bit too much he's during World War II, um, although I think you said there was probably a little hint of it beforehand. Um, but, yeah... Uh, although they've got all this history together and although there is obviously a lot of um, uh, Logan being 
unhappy with the way things are being handled and what they're being asked to do and and that all that history and past is there he'd walked away he he had this new life and he had this um you know this partner who was who had become everything for him and you you really get a sense that when they square off there it's entirely about her there's something very frightening about uh, Schreiber's performance as Creed he's Mostly pretty understated. He doesn't gloat. He, he says a lot of things with suggestive looks. And uh, you get the, the feeling that reasoning with him makes absolutely no difference when he's got his mind set on something. But at the same time, he's not played as an entirely black character. There are times, uh, specifically you know, nearer to the end, when he actually seems to care about Logan, which doesn't run perfectly parallel with a completely stone-cold sociopath. So that gives him a bit more dimension. Mm. More dimension than most of the people that Logan has a scrap with. Absolutely. And and I think that's one of the things that, I mean, we, we said that there are things that this film actually does really impressively. And that's one of them. Uh, to, to have that relationship between Wolverine and Sabretooth be the centre of it, it has to be strong. It, there has to be something to keep your interest in it beyond the first 45 minutes of the first big fight. Yeah. Um, and, and it has that in spades. The key conflict arises from the fact that like most uh, comic book nemesises, nem- nemesi? Nemesis? Nemesis. Um, Nematode? No. Uh, uh, Wolverine's is a shadowy, hulking reflection of himself in the same way that uh, Ironmonger in the original Iron Man is like Tony Stark without any morals or ethics. Uh, Sabretooth is the wild, unbridled side of Logan that he's terrified of, that he doesn't want to ever let off the chain. And uh, Creed revels in this. He loves the fact that uh, he he, ha- he answers to no one. He, he goes along with the people who uh, give him the chance to get into the best action. Uh, but uh, the the, one, the key theme, which Fox allowed to be put in there at all, is quote-unquote civilised man, at least a noble warrior, versus the wild animal. And both of them are at war within Logan all the time. Indeed. And the fact that um, that Victor is his half-brother brings that home even harder. Mm. <clears throat> so then there's the Weapon X experiment, which uh, felt kind of like deja vu, since we've already seen a lot of flashes of this in uh, X-Men 2. I, I suppose you could interpret the different approaches to Logan that outsiders take. And the, the folks running the Weapon X project, when he pulls himself out of the water and goes ballistic, all they had to do was say, stop, we're your friends, calm the fuck down. Or, or just at least try to dissipate the tension of the situation rather than shooting him in the in the head. It reminds me of how Charles goes in to talk to Jean and agitates the hell out of her so that she kills him. They're basically just so ready to end his life and they don't care about him at all. And then you got the Kents, sorry, the Hudsons, uh, who are uh, nurturing to him and treat him like uh, the, you know a proxy version of their son who's wandered in off the street. They, they show compassion. And there's a, a Frankenstein parallel there as well. The rejected monster, uh, the creation, striking out against his creator and finding the milk of human kindness when he's wandering in the wild. Again, pretty clumsy and ham-fisted, but I'll take it over the completely not trying in X-Men 3 any day. Oh, one more thing about the Weapon X experiment. Someone says, Weapon X? And he says, 
Roman numeral 10. So that implies yeah. that there have been uh, nine weapons before that. Weapon I, weapon II, weapon III, weapon IV, weapon V, weapon VI, weapon VII, weapon VII, weapon IX, weapon X. That sounds pretty awesome, but then it goes shit again. Weapon XI, weapon XII, <laughs> weapon XIII, weapon XIV. Why not just call it weapon 10? Yes. That if would you be really, sensible. if you are gonna, committed to this premise, because he says, fire up weapon 11 at the end, which is it, dude? And it's supposed to be a visual thing as well, that reference. If, if you saw it written down, or carved into the side of the cage, or something like that, mm-hmm. then that's, that's okay. That works. Because you get to put the Roman numeral and the number together in your head. But when somebody actually has to say it out loud. Mind you, I mean, this was, this was something that suddenly hit me about, um, half an hour into the film. Cause it's, it, they start off with this, uh, they've gone back to this visual storytelling thing, which when they've done it in the earlier films has worked so well. And then they seem to abandon that in favor of a series of, little trailer scripts nobody ever has a complete conversation it's all just mm. trailer moments we lost contact with who everyone yeah this is uh, one of the weakest uh, sides of it and also I and mean, we've seen this before if you've seen the x-men cartoon it plays through roughly the same if you've read the X- uh, weapon x comic it plays through roughly the same that's not necessarily a bad thing but they didn't really add anything to this scenario also, the whole weapon XI, weapon XII, weapon XI against I. Um, <laughs> flesh of my flesh and mind of my mind. Uh, he's, that's all from Grant Morrison's X-Men. I think he introduced Phantom X, who was like weapon 13 or something. Mm. And so Wolverine finds out that X stood for 10, and that kind of busts the Wolverine uh, mythos open without Grant Morrison really thinking, oh, hang on a second, they'd have to call the eighth one a weapon VIII, which is inelegant. <laughs> After the Kents get mercilessly shot by um, Weapon Zero. Mm-hmm. Agent Zero. Agent Zero. Yeah, he mercilessly shoots them. And then there's this fucking motorbike sequence, which is ridiculous, with a helicopter sequence. And then Wolverine kills a helicopter with just his claws. Tony Jaa could have done it with his knees. True. But... but um, and then, and then Wolverine does that thing where he sort of sets a helicopter on fire and walks away from the explosion looking like it ain't no thing. And I've seen this awesome uh, uh, YouTube video where it's just people walking away from explosions. Even Iron Man does it when he just fends off tank missile and then walks towards the camera like, ah, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, man yeah, on fire. He's, he's wearing armor, at least. Wolverine would suffer from singed hair, yeah. if nothing else. But, I mean, you, uh, the bit, uh, the rock does it in... Um, uh, Welcome to the jungle slash the rundown, depending on which territory you're in. And like, like giant flaming tires are flying past his head. And it's like, no, 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 you should really look behind you. There's shit flying at you. And one of these, like, <laughs> you they might want to duck. They could have done it in hot fuzz, actually, where like they blow shit up and then they walk away from it. And then it's like, then Danny Button goes, Oh fuck, there's bits flying at us. <laughs> Immediately. They're like, oh, I thought you just keep walking forwards, but there's, it's really dangerous. <laughs> they missed a trick there. But, um, yeah, again, that's just like the camera panning up and the music swelling up. We've seen it so many times that our brain just goes, oh, it's that bit. And this we just sort of nod along with it. Real. But, but, I mean, 
I'm waiting for films to stop doing stuff like this. That will never happen. There will always be films that do stuff like Where this. Where men blow things up and walk slowly away from them. Absolutely. Blame <laughs> Like it ain't no thing. Seems like these days the whole world's on fire. Things keep blowing the hell up. And while all those rubberneckers and looky-loos stand slack-jawed staring, the real men have the nuts to walk away. Yeah. Cool guys don't look at explosions. They blow things up and then walk away. Who's got time to watch an explosion? There's cool guy Aryans that they have to walk to. Keep walking, keep shining. Don't look back. Keep on walking, keep strutting, slow motion, the more you ignore it, the cooler you look. Anyway, they probably don't need to do any, any more Marvel films unless they're parodying Iron Man. I mean, Deadpool could do it. Yes. Anyway, then there's an awkward comedy boxing match with Fat Bastard from Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. This is because they've been trying to get the blob into previous X-Men films and they couldn't do it in any way where people wouldn't laugh at him. So they thought, let's just do it and have a full-throated belly laugh at the fatty. And it's okay to laugh at him because he was previously thin and this is his fault. Hang on a minute, though. It's not glandular, it's all right. No, no, no. They say he developed an eating disorder. So what you're basically doing is having a laugh at somebody with severe mental health issues. Yes. What's his mutant power as well? In, in, in the comics, Fred Dukes the Blob can, like, like his, his he flab... He absorbs kinetic energy. Yeah. His, the more his, he absorbs, the stronger he gets. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's part and parcel of who he is, and his power is actually used as a weapon. In this, it's just a fat bloke. Who seems to be a little bit resistant to getting punched with an adamantium fist. I think... The, un- the thing that really makes this a bit creepier and uncomfortable is the fact that Hugh Jackman can barely hold back the hilarity of the situation. He's like, dude, he's got an extra hiney poking out of his front. And it's like, yes, everyone in the audience who is overweight is now squirming in their seats. It's not very pleasant. Yeah. So, yeah, cheers for that one. And, of course, we get the acting tornado that is rapper Will I Am. But Ms. Keys wasn't the only MOBO winner hawking technology. The ubiquitous Will I Am was at Macworld last week, where the Wall Street Journal asked him penetrating questions about technology. What's your What's your favorite gadget right now? Right now would be the iPad Mini. Really? What do you like about it? It's smaller than the iPad. He was promoting his own bespoke gizmo, showcased lovingly by CNN, a $400 accessory that turns the iPhone into a boxier, less ergonomic iPhone. So then you sit there and you lock it. Now it's locked. Presumably it's aimed at people who wished they'd bought a camera in 1978 instead of an iPhone in 2013. But wait, it also has an extra function. And if that's not enough, a keypad for folks who want to text. Yeah, for folks who want to text on something other than, but attached to, the iPhone they already own. Still on the plus side, it lights up. Will I am is proud of his invention, as he explained during the launch a few months ago. This was in my head in February, and now it's in my hand in November. About to be in stores in December. And in landfill sites by March. We also get to see a young Scott Summers, uh, Cyclops, with who appears to have very fortunately stumbled upon some ruby quartz sunglasses. Yeah. Where did he get them from? 
Xavier I mean, gave them to him. As I recall in the comics, the point is that his his power develops, tears apart his school, and then Scott is left this weeping kid in the corner um, who afraid to open his eyes, and everyone's terrified of him. Charles turns up to rescue him from that situation, and they talk it through together, and Charles figures out through his incredible brain power that some sort of inhibitor might actually allow Scott to see. In this, he's just got them already. That, that basically is just an astonishing narrative contrivance. And he spends the rest of the film with like a blindfold on uh, so that he can't see that Wolverine saved everyone and so he doesn't remember him later. Except, of course, that everybody who he's hanging out with when they go to, to meet horrible, weird, creepy CG Botox Xavier at the end, so glad he turned up. I'm not even sure Patrick Stewart did anything other than turn up and do some recording booth work because I don't think that was even him. <laughs> hey, Patrick, we can put your face on anybody now. Yeah, well, I'm assuming they still had it in their computers. Oh, my God. Ugh. We've got your face look, in a box. Look, we put it on the baby from Twilight. <laughs> That's good. Oh, dear. Can you make all the ladies' clothes fall off? Instantly. Instantly. Her clothes fall off? Instantly. Sure. So, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming uh, when um, all of these young mutants met him, nobody said, well, thank God for that guy with the big long claws, because he saved us all. I'm assuming everyone just conveniently forgot that and no one ever mentioned it to Scott because if they had he'd sure as shit be on the lookout for a six-clawed mutant that he could say thank you to you would think and that if he ever met him he wouldn't be a prick to him but anyway don't think too much don't think too much action sequence (sighs) and um yeah we get to see uh uh, Taylor Kitsch as Shambit (laughs) <laughs> they waited all this time to bring Gambit into the X-Men movies and then they fucked it up. It's like, he's going to be good, it's going to be good, you know it's going to be good because we're holding it back, we're holding it back, we don't want to mess it up, we don't want to shoot our load before we they have the totally perfect shot Gambit. their load. I mean, I, right, Just okay. in their pants they did. On this occasion, I have to admit, I was not as appalled by Taylor Kitsch as I have been in the past. Let's He's face not it, an is not, unattractive guy. Gambit is not the deepest of characters either. No, he's not. But the problem is that what Gambit does have, what Gambit has in spades, if you'll pardon the pun, is charisma. He Natural has it coming out of the wazoo. Powers. Absolutely. And yet, there's Taylor Kitsch, who's not bad looking, but that's about the best you can say about him. Josh Holloway must have been available for the three afternoons that it required Taylor Kitsch to show up. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, and th- that bit, that bit where he's climbing the ladder and, and like super fast oh and Wolverine's chopping God. down the ladder like jack, jack, jack. It's like oh. a fucking cartoon. It's like a Warner Brothers cartoon. The bit where he takes, uh, Wolverine smashes his staff in half and he uses the sharp ends to climb up the brick wall. And then he like does this cartwheel over the street because of his natural agility. It's like, it's like a parody of The Matrix. And that, that is like the movie movies doing The Matrix. Right. Here's the thing though, there will be people out there, you know, possibly the epic not movies. listening to this, but there will be people out there who will be saying, so what you're saying is you'll accept a guy who has metal claws coming out of his hands. Climbing but not up a, a guy, power station, which he does later. Indeed. But not a guy using the ends of a broken 
walking stick to do the same thing? Well, no, because when they started making these films, they made it clear that they were intending them to seem realistic. You, once yeah. you set up the physics of your world, it's good manners, if nothing else, to stay within those parameters. I mean, if nothing else, if you want to really split hairs about it, and I do, uh, <laughs> Wolverine has a super strong adamantium unbreakable skeleton, so when he jams those claws into brickwork and pulls himself up, he has the ruggedness to be able to like be shoving unbreakable spikes into, cl- climbing spikes into things. Gambit has two broken sticks and human's ability to jam them into brickwork. He's not blowing them up. There's no basketballs here. <laughs> What's wrong with these balls? <laughs> so yeah, I, I will at least say that when he charges up the cards, there's like an oh yeah moment. It was like but a half an oh yeah moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a second and a half. Yeah. <laughs> but that's about it. And uh, Creed also does a lot of... This is where Creed does some fighting in the alley. I, I'm not sure whether he's bounding along like a, a wild animal, almost like a... Um, uh, cat. Well, no, I was going to say Wendigo. Oh, okay. No, not the Hulk villain, the Wendigo. No. The cat talking about Zambuk Wendigo. Your Wendigos, yeah. They're not my... Yeah, there they are. They are your Wendigos. Having them. You I'm having them. them. They're mine. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to work out whether that bounding is really cool or really shit. Right. It's here's, one or the other, depending the on how much you accept of it. When he does one and a half bounds and then pounces on Wolverine in the bar. slow motion. It looks awesome. Yeah, that's true. When he does two and a half, <laughs> looking like a dickhead. And when he tur- when he's in the school and he bounces up and turns into a rubber man. And oh, my God, that's Bounces so off the walls, bounces off the ceiling, runs along upside down. You're like, yes. ooh. Yeah, then it's shit. Okay, well, there you go, then. It's really cool for a bit and then it's really shit when they maintain it. There you go then. Overdid it. Leap. Otherwise, he just morphs into a CG cat. Good. FYI, Beast does this in X Men Three, and in Days of Future Past. Also, so Creed kills Will I Am, and then sucks out his juice with a <laughs> with a, a, a syringe. What is that? He, 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 he like he jabs him and then sucks out a bit of his fluids. And then he goes and squirts that into the dead pool, and then he takes on all of those. I'm not sure they really thought this through. This is this is like 1979 technology. Well, this is from. Bear in mind, this is probably from a very similar brain that brought you Magneto's mutantifying machine. How does that work then? Oy. Oh, you just hold these handles, and then it does whatever you want it to do. Yeah. So he he sucks out a bit of this juice, and he also sucked out some blob juice, and he sucked out some <laughs> Scott's. Sucked out some of Scott juice, and, uh, <laughs> and and someone had swords in their arms, and they sucked out his juice too. <laughs> and someone disgusting. teleported. Yeah, that was Wraith. He teleported, and uh, someone couldn't speak, and he sucked out his juice, and then they squirted all of it. It's like he's a giant cocktail. It's like he's a, a three mile island iced tea. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here all week. <laughs> Honestly, top of my head. They also sucked it out of the top of his head. <laughs> so, yeah, no, the, the basic. That's my eye juices. 
again, just like all the X-Men films, it's like, okay, right, realistic, serious, like, character interplay back and forth, and then it collapses like a flan in a cupboard at the end where they go, finally, our horrible creation is complete. Never tested it before, but it should work really, really well. Off you go. Get some pajama bottoms on him, though. At least protect his dignity. And it's this sort of, not at all Deadpool. One thing Deadpool doesn't have. Swords in his arms. He talks, I mean, it's not Deadpool. And I don't, I don't think I'm really gonna argue that much about it or, 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 or make that much of a big deal. A lot of people have already made a big deal out of it. It's, it, he is every shambling, pointless henchman ever that Wolverine's ever fought. And just like Sabretooth in the first X-Men film, and just like Deathstroke in the second X-Men film, and just like everybody that Logan fought in the third X-Men film, he doesn't talk. Well, he's Darth Maul. You pointed that out. Yeah, even down to the slow motion bisecting uh, as he fought top. And the two two swords, uh, he totally is Darth Maul. I, I don't know. Well, they've already had Darth Maul. They had Toad. How much more Darth Maul do you want? <laughs> Lots. But yeah, I think... They do know Star Wars isn't cool anymore, right? I think what happened is that they looked at a picture of Deadpool and said, That guy looks really cool. He's mute, right? No. <laughs> oh, he's the Merc with the mouth. That's his name. He's he's really mouthy. Well, let's just say he's mute. We'll sew his mouth shut. Why? Because he's got to fight someone. Could he not fight Creed? No. Surely fighting Creed should happen at the end of the film and should be the one that's really emotionally charged, not fighting that thing. So you've got Deadpool with no witty quips and Mm one-liners, Gambit with no charisma, Mm -hmm. and Wraith with no juice, (laughs) because they sucked it out of him. Yeah. (sighs) Anyway. Oh, Blob with no powers as well. Just a fat guy. It's like Jenga. How much could they take out before it fell over? Well, that much. And then around about the time they get to Three Mile Island, it falls over. It falls over. And it really can't sustain itself beyond that alley fight, which it was already very shaky at that point. So yeah, uh, and Kayla shows up and uh, we find out that uh, she wasn't dead and it was the old, um, I, you know, won't be dead trick. So as I understand it, she was kind of like Sharon Stone in Total Recall. She was set up to be in a relationship with Logan so that Stryker could lure him back by instigating and orchestrating a fake death. But it turns out she fell in love with him for real. Initially, she was supposed to be keeping an eye on him, basically. Like, just monitoring him. So, yeah, exactly like Sharon Stone in Total Recall. Um, but then they presumably initiated this project, decided that they wanted him back. Um, there was this whole thing about he has to do it voluntarily because they can't make anesthetic work on him. Um, and uh, so they ha- arranged this whole plot whereby she would pretend to be dead. Now, her mutant power is to do with um it's tactile it's, uh, tacto hypnosis. hypnosis yeah. Um she's of the sort of Emma Frost empath um school of, of psychic. I know you should mention that. Well indeed. Um but uh, there is actually a point where she tries to influence Victor and he says, Your mind games don't work on me, which suggests they wouldn't work on Logan either. Which 
seems to imply that their relationship was entirely natural. genuine. Yeah. yeah. Again, more depth that you have to really read into it and um, was almost unintentional. Maybe but so. yeah, uh, she she reminds me a little bit of um, uh, I want to say Bridget Moynihan. What's her name? Michelle Monaghan. Michelle Monaghan. She reminds me a little bit of Michelle Monaghan, specifically in Mission Impossible Three. Uh, who is, she just comes up as very genuine and, and loving as a person, and, and, and there is a, a sense of loss there as she's killed off. So that at least is a saving grace of this. Because <clears throat> it manages what uh, X Men Three didn't manage to do. Mm. I, they never name her. At least as far as I can, I can tell, they don't name her. But her sister was obviously positioned as sort of a prototypical Emma Frost because she does the whole diamond hardening thing. Although interestingly, there is actually the, the, you know the woman who said you've never felt any pain as much as this. The Doctor woman in the Weapon X project. Her name was Frost. Just really? Accused the fuck out of everything. Good grief. Okay. Uh, Dr. Carol Frost. Yeah, uh, fortunately, like I say, uh, Emma Frost is never named. You could, I suppose, say, since the January Jones character of Emma Frost uh, was around in 1960, in the early 1960s, that this diamond hard girl is her daughter. Or maybe just a completely unrelated mutant. It's feasible. Kind of feasible. Mm. Yeah. But their um, powers are at least visually... Um, not quite the same because uh, Emma Frost in first class turns diamond all the way through and also it's like a solid diamond. She refracts through the middle. I wouldn't read too much into the effects of this film. Fair point. (laughs) The people doing the effects sure as shit didn't. That's a fair point. Um, yeah, the Three Mile Island incident actually happened March 28th, 1979, over a couple of days, and it, it was uh, um, a, a national incident, and it was um, a pretty fucking horrible one as well. Uh, but that um, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that this happened exactly at that point in 79, although the years sort of match up uh, in terms of the fact that young Botox CG Charles turns up looking exactly the same as he did when he would very shortly be going off to meet Gene, I suppose it makes sense that Wolverine would then have wandered around for 20 years before they found him in X-Men. There are two coda endings for this. One is the version that we saw where uh, Deadpool's, I call it Deadpool, the thing that was named Deadpool, uh, Weapon XI, uh, its hand sort of creeps out of the rubble and goes and touches its head, and the head wakes up and looks at us and goes, shh. And it's got sort of dark patches around its eyes, by the way, I might have mentioned, which sort of emulate the eyes of the Deadpool mask. And it also has eye beams, like Deadpool doesn't. Anyway. uh, Those black patches are a direct result of the eye beams. The first time it uses the eye beams, it scorches around its eyes. Uh Uh-huh. Good old physics there. Why doesn't Scott have that, then? Because. There you go, then. Brilliant. But they, 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 they only had the black patches because it's the same fucking illogic that follows the rest of this movie. Oh, the other one was uh, Wolverine in a bar ordering shots. They say, are you drinking to forget? And he says, I'm drinking to remember, which is kind of a sad little, we'll just leave Wolverine getting drunk in this bar. Probably the same bar he was getting drunk in in the 60s. Very likely. He wouldn't have been getting drunk, though. 
Is it like Superman where he needs to drink a lot? His healing factor, as far as I'm aware... I suppose I if tranquilizers don't I've, work on him, then alcohol. Yeah, I can't remember where I've seen this written down, but I'm sure I have seen this somewhere, that basically his healing factor processes alcohol so quickly that he cannot get drunk. Brilliant. So, are you drinking to forget? I literally can't get drunk, sir. So, I'm going to waste some money <laughs> on fire I might as well water. be here with a tap water. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, um... I just like the taste of whiskey. That's how much of a fucking man I am. Um, so yeah, the, the final killer blow of this film is the adamantium bullet. I think in all seriousness, the circumstances of, of Wolverine's memory loss, we can probably just forget it and say, well, that was a shit idea, but the, the end result is actually quite good, which is that Wolverine has left a tragic character unable to remember the woman he loved or the circumstances that brought him there, and he's left wandering the wilderness of the world without roots, without understanding of who he is or anyone that he could ever have been connected to. That is a sad ending, and that actually does work. The means of getting to it, though, is a shitty shorthand. In Origin... Uh, something terrible happens to Rose, and it's Wolverine's fault. And he runs off into the forest to be alone, and uh, just because he can't cope with what's just ter- happened. And a fella called Smitty comes to uh, uh, find him to ask if he will come back to civilization. And he's forgotten the incident because, and this was the kicker, and it allows us to understand why Wolverine can't remember his past. His brain heals over traumatic experiences as though they are wounds. Which says a great deal about the human experience. And as we go through life and we collect these scars, we are supposed to keep them. We are supposed to remember them. And poor Wolverine is unable to do that. He just has the pain. And that's a wonderful ending to a thought-provoking book. And in this, I'm fairly certain the executive said, we don't understand that shit, so audience are going to be that stupid too. He hates these cans! Make it a bullet. But, as you said, Sharon, regular bullets didn't work on him when he didn't have adamantium in his skeleton. They shot him over and over again. And Stryker's rationale is, well, I'll just shoot him in in the memory box, and that will blow all those (laughs) memories out of there. There's no way he can grow them back. And it works because, you know, comics. Or is this, it works because, you know, movies. Because I, I, I really think that in this case, the comics outstrip the movies. And do remember, of course, Brian Singer didn't want to do the X-Men comic because he said that comics were an unintelligent form of literature. So anyway, uh, all I can really get from this is um, well done to Hugh Jackman for selling the um, the tragedy of Wolverine at the end, and it really seemed like, again, that he cares about this character. And thank Christ, the Fox execs backed the fuck off for X-Men First Class. I don't know what Matthew Vaughan must have said or done to make it happen, but it's possible that this was such a compromised piece of shit that they actually got the message. Maybe so. So, yeah, I think that'll probably about do it for X-Men Origins colon Wolverine. Anything else about it? Um, <clears throat> no, I think we've pretty much covered everything. I mean, my my remaining issues with it were sort of all uh, based around the adamantium bullet thing. Um, in fact, Stryker makes a comment uh, when they're about to do the whole adamantium infusing process. Somebody says something like, what, what are you going to do when he 
comes to and tries to kill you, oh, we'll just wipe his memory. How are you planning on doing that at this stage? Um, and as you say, the idea of them going in there with a bullet and trying to cut his memories out specifically, <laughs> it's... Uh, uh, even if he had him under a brain scanner and could surgically pinpoint, there you go, that's the bit of his head that stores the memories, put a bullet through that. You can't guarantee that all he isn't going to remember is strike a kill. Also, I don't know why you've got... It, you've got to put adamantium on, on the skeleton of one of your uh, special agents. Why have oh, you well, got to do that in the first place? And if you're going to, why go to all this trouble to manipulate and fuck over one guy, make him unkillable, and then go, that was a bad idea. What a stupid fucking thing to do! If the purpose of getting Logan back was to get his healing factor to give to Deadpool because for some reason Victor's healing factor wouldn't transfer, which they do say something along those lines that basically Victor wasn't any good for this process. Oh, because Logan's got a level 10 and Victor's got a level 9 I don't know what. He's super saiyan. For whatever reason, it didn't work. If all you wanted was the healing factor, why does he need the adamantium skeleton? If you're giving him the adamantium skeleton in order that he can um, kill Victor, which is what Stryker claims, that he wants uh, Logan to, to put Victor down, why then shoot him in the head with the adamantium bullet that you believe is going to kill him before he's killed Victor? I think he's just, he doesn't know he's think he's going to kill him. He just thinks he's going to wipe his memory so Logan won't be angry. But he could still be angry at, uh, you know, he could still have no memory and the, the mind of a feral creature. Exactly. And strike out and kill everyone around him. Indeed. It's, it's playing with fire. It's, it's putting, pouring petrol all over your house. To I'm put going, the fire out. I must, must have this, do this special experiment with fire. Hmm. And also, if, if, you really don't care about Victor Creed and keeping him on as a soldier, and you really do think that you, you probably can't contain Wolverine, you're going to have to kill him, and there's a possibility he might just kill Creed. Why not just put fucking adamantium on Creed anyway, just to see if it fucking works? Dude's willing. He wants to do this shit. If he dies, what have you lost? Well, other than a shed load of adamantium. Well, no, because you, you just, oh yeah, I suppose you go then, you, you then have to keep it liquid, otherwise it's... Yeah, they've like, said once it sets, you can't use it again. But, I mean, they clearly had a reasonable amount. They had enough to do Logan, and then Lady Deathstrike, and still have a tank full. Also, the, the, the heating bill for keeping adamantium liquid for 22 years. Yeah. That's going to be quite high, isn't it? Although, mind you, I suppose if they had the dam, they probably had a, um, wave, Hydroelectric. Yeah. <clears throat> so there also, you go. Alkali they, Lake. They were using sustainable power. They have that in their favour. Alkali Lake features in three of the four X-Men films. It's all about fucking Alkali Lake. It's the, they, the they, nexus of X-Men events. They paid for that location. They are damn well going to use it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the whole bullet memory wiping, it, it really scotches the idea of his memories coming back on their own later on as well because if his healing factor has scarred them over too quickly for him to be able to process them which i agree is a, a fantastic uh metaphor and and 
something that was one of the most interesting things about Logan for me for years and years and years. It's also um, a really good uh, way of uh, expressing buried trauma. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea of but, memories that are so painful you literally can't face them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but if those pieces of your physical brain have been ripped out with a bullet, they can't come back. They cannot grow back the same way they were before. Your memory is not in your <clears throat> DNA, as so, we discussed earlier. Yes. So, yeah, here we go, applying physics, rationality, and all this stuff to a film that the Fox execs were fighting to keep as stupid as possible. Frankenstein, there's also a parallel of Jekyll and Hyde, uh, which is actually very similar to the Hulk in terms of the fact that Wolverine is a man with the best of intentions, but the beast is within him. I do find it interesting that there seems to be that opposition in this, where you've got um, Stryker and Victor insisting you're the animal, you have to let the animal out, the animal is you, and then you've got Kayla insisting you're not an animal and ultimately he's got to reconcile the two yeah what he ends up working out to uh, as an ongoing um, way of life is to be the man as much of the time as he possibly can but to let the animal out much like the hulk when needed to see that it has use and it serves a purpose it's not just this horrible shadow that has to be squashed all the time and what it comes down to as well, and because this is something that has been said before, if you like something, sometimes you're willing to let that shit slide. And on that note, <laughs> we'll see you very soon for X-Men First Class. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And adamantium-laced neural, neural handshake, handshake complete. complete. Well, Wolverine, you were against Kitty being a member of the team. What do you think now? So the kid got lucky that don't make her an X-Man. Not yet. Yes, the X-Men have won, but only for now. Magneto is still out there, waiting, planning, plotting the destruction of the human race. But whatever the challenge, whatever the peril, the X-Men will be there. To hide, no place to run, no place to run. The mutant tale, the mutant tale has now begun. X-Men.